This is uh, Chad and Mark with I Want to Know and our special guest, uh, Jay Cooper, today. How's it going, Jay? It's going good. Thanks for having me on the show, guys. Awesome. Jay Cooper is uh, was a Calgary police officer mm-hmm. um, who's moved into private investigation. What's that transition like? Um, actually, it wasn't too bad. Um, uh, 20 years in policing because I did 11 with CPS, um, but I was in the UK before that. So after 20 years, um, um, the novelty wears off rolling around with people in puddles at 3 <laughs> o'clock in the morning. And it's like, <laughs> when am I doing this? Yeah. Um, so the, the way that the, the, the policing thing was going, they were, I was effectively looking at getting back to the cobbles. And um, an opportunity came along with a friend of mine who works in the insurance sector. And he said, you know, we've got some investigation gaps available. Yeah. And um, do you know anyone that's interested? Nice. Oh, funnily enough, yes, yes I do. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me more. So um, I think I've been doing that about four months now, and cool, cool. Um, it's it's a lot less stress, man. I'm on days, yeah. I work from home, and yeah. it's it's you know there's a, it's, there's a bit of a learning curve because although the skill sets are transferable, like yeah. investigation and, and all that sort of thing, it's still a whole new sphere of uh, of legislation and things I now have to get used to nice. with regards to insurance yeah. and, and one thing and another. So it's actually been great to to be a rookie again. Yeah. You know? Try something new. Exactly. Uh, re-educate yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what, it, what was your positions in CPS? Um, well, I started, obviously, um, as, a, as a constable there because I came over from the UK. Yeah. Well, I, I was a detective before I came over, but I, I started back at street level, which was nice. Then um, after being on the cobbles for a bit, I was in cells. Um, I worked in there. I did the bail hearings and the... You know the general prison handling and that sort of thing. Cool. Uh, that's not a euphemism. Um, <laughs> <laughs> zing, zing. Yeah. Um, and then from there, I ended up working um, on. I did a brief stint on the API three initiative. Which, What's that? Well, API three was when the province had this vision of this unified uh, computer system and all, oh, all okay. the services. And the, the, yeah, that's going to fly. Yeah. Uh, from there, I went on to um, uh, another project actually called Palantir, which was an outside company and they do data mining. So in other words, if you think within the policing, all the different systems they have in there, they've got like, you know, tickets and uh, intelligence and crimes and, you know, all, a million and one different small data packets and da- databases. Um, this was effectively, we used to nickname it Cop Google, so it sits on top of all those. Yeah. So instead of searching J. Cooper in 20 different systems, you search one J. Cooper and then it effectively searches oh, the systems nice. for you. So you end up with a much cleaner data and you can you know, find stuff that ordinarily you wouldn't because of either the way the redaction stored and, and all that. So it, it, it got quite technical, but it's, yeah. from an intelligence perspective, it's, uh, um, it was actually fascinating. It gave me a good inside line on that. And then from there, I ended up overhauling the intelligence um, recording standards within CPS as well. Nice. So we, we, as we were moving forward, there's obviously the, the whole carding issue came up from Toronto and yeah. how we record and store, disseminate with our intelligence pieces. So coming from the UK background, when that's bread and butter, intelligence-led policing was very much at the forefront over there. So I was spearheading that. And you know now we grade the intelligence, the source of the intelligence, the veracity, all that sort of bits and pieces. So I implemented that too. Then CPS decided that uh, um, the best use of my skills, having established this uh, massive intelligence protocol, was to put me back on the front desk. <laughs> so not not on See, the street. Uh, sorry, don't say that out loud. So not <laughs> yeah, so not on the street. No, not straight away. They put me back to the um, um, to the front desk, which was an experience in and of itself as well. Because to me, that should always be. There's always this thing when you look at policing. The front desk is like where. Traditionally, you see the lazy people going. That's what those are thought process. Yeah. But in reality, that should be where we get the gold standard service because most people in, in society, in the city, in any country, 
don't deal with the police very much. Right. It's it's your chances of encountering a police officer in a one to one encounter are pretty low. Yeah, you so, guys deal with the one to three percent. Yeah, of the exactly. So yeah. If, if you're coming into the station, that may be your only encounter with the police officer in your entire life in terms of an interaction with them. So you yeah. don't want the crusty old git there that mm. just doesn't want to be there. You I, know, I have a story about meeting the crusty old git there. Oh man, there's enough of them out what there. What a dill hole that guy was. <laughs> I actually said, well, if you're going to arrest me, just do it because I'm tired of your crap. Like he was getting so, and and I don't, I, I have total respect for the police officers this guy was just way out of line i'm like whatever if you're gonna put me in jail put me in jail otherwise take my money and go back behind your desk and then he <laughs> stared at me for about five seconds which was very uncomfortable there's a long fight i'm like it. shit i'm going to jail <laughs> and he ended up taking my money and then settling down and all that and That's he actually wasn't even mad at me yeah my personal experience like whenever i've had to deal with the the desk guys it's one of the few times i've forgotten that i was talking to somebody in a uniform because it's the small talk comes in and it's just talking to a yeah. normal person and there's no, uh, what would you call it? The confrontation yep. just isn't yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. And so I totally see what you're saying there. You're like, yeah, cops are people too, I guess. Yeah, we get yeah, that. Well, are. sometimes they were. I mean, I'm not a cop anymore, so I don't care. I can slack them off if you want. But <laughs> 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 no, I mean, it was a good time in the police and CPS overall is actually a good service. You know, um, I've, um, I, when I first came to uh, Canada, I, I did a brief stint with Edmonton in training there. And um, there are good people in EPS too, but again, they have a slightly different approach to policing, as all cities do. You know, you, you vary it on how it goes. But Calgary, overwhelmingly, is, is is a really good service to be in. Yeah. Um. But like any, you know, you get members of the population. If you think like of all the people in the city of Calgary, out of you know, we'll b- keep it simple. A million people are, are really really good. Yeah. Out of that million, two percent are dickheads. Right. You got that same percentage in the police. police so you know, like you know, sure. the most of them are good. Two percent are dickheads. I, I have a couple of friends that are CPS, and they're fantastic guys. They're always fun. They're to help you out, and yeah, they're they're great. Yeah. And I honestly don't have a complaint about the Calgary Police Force. That one guy was a bit of a dill hole, and maybe he's having a bad day. Maybe his uh, wife didn't put out that morning. Or, yeah, you never know. Man. <laughs> Dad pulled out thirty seconds too late a few years ago. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it was um, no, it was um, it was good because CPS was an overwhelmingly positive experience. But yeah. I, I hit the point where it's like I need to to move on to something else. Yeah, and, and this opportunity came along, and yeah, no looking back. Very cool, cool, cool. I know Mark had some questions for you about uh, martial arts. Yeah, you're also a very accomplished martial artist. That's I'm, where I know Jay from. Is, yeah. Uh, the uh, the havoc your uh, your club which yeah. is uh, it's it's combat JKD right uh, yeah. effectively yeah I mean a steam martial arts um, uh, havoc JKD is is the coming together of, of the two schools because one of my students owned a school um, okay steam martial arts and I obviously founded the havoc system um, it's interesting I've trained in JKD in other clubs and so when I came to you I was like well you know I enjoy trying new things I don't really I don't really have a great opinion about JKD but hey, it's always fun to do it. Your, your system is very different from whatever I've seen, and I Thank think you. it's very, uh, I think it's quite effective. And you hear the excuses a lot of times with a lot of traditional martial arts where the reason you don't see this in the UFC is because everything's illegal and we would kill people. I think your system, the, the catch wrestling and the combat JKD is probably one of, the, like everything I learned that I took away is illegal in, in an MMA ring for sure. So I, I, uh, I, I think it's a great self-defense skill for sure. It's, I mean, one of the things the great... Um, paradoxes if you look at MMA and I'm glad you actually brought that up because um, do you have a soapbox nearby I can sit on while I'm having this little rant or is we are actually this house is built on a soapbox so we're so set I'm already well set yeah, it's, like a, it's, like a, it's like a burial ground in Poldergeist that's right. a giant soapbox and you mean our studio is built on a 
What's that? Our, our studio is built on a Oh, no, if you're in close proximity to me, you're in my house. <laughs> okay. Always. You understand that, Chad? I get it. I get it. It's like The Undertaker. <laughs> this is his yard. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, no, because um, when, if you look back, like way back through history, um, if it's taught us nothing else, it's taught us that if you um, uh, don't apply stuff under pressure, you'll never perform under pressure. I mean, Archilochus himself said that way back in the day in 650 B.C., You'll never rise to the occasion. You'll fall to the level of your training. Right. And that's one of my favorite quotes so much. So it's actually on the door of, uh, of the dojo at Esteem. As you walk in, it's the first picture you see. Beautiful. It's one of the first quotes because it's it's so important to understand that. Diamonds are formed under pressure. Right. And combat arts and combat systems should always have that same principle. So if you look back at like in Tokyo when they did the police championships, um, when Jigaro Kano first brought judo to the forefront, all the because the police were like, you know, we need this a new system that we're going to teach our officers and, and blah blah blah. So all these um, traditional older jujitsu schools they came along, and for years they said, oh, you know, we can't practice this for real because we kill everybody. So they started doing counter based and you know cooperative partner based work. What happened was. Um, Kano said, well, we'll get rid of all the dangerous stuff so then we can actually practice this stuff and we'll make it a bit sporty, make it more of a way of life development thing. Of course, what happened is because you're training a restricted tool set, you're then putting that under pressure against non-compliance and you're just trying to find a way through it. So, of course, because they trained under pressure, they literally mopped the floor with everyone else that was there who theoretically had a more complete approach to it. Then you get the other paradox, which is, well, that beat all those systems that are too deadly, so therefore those systems don't work. Well, no, they do, but their training methodology is so bad because as you move away from you know, an acceptable death count amongst your students, then you have to remove those bits and pieces right. from it. You know, I mean, yeah. The Soviet army, as far as I know, still kills people in training. They consider that a sacrifice. The US one clearly doesn't. Yeah. So you know, there's all, all training is compromised, and it's how much you're willing to compromise on that training. Yeah. When the UFC and those guys um, came out, they showed ground fighting as like you know king of the hill. Um, it like was tremendous. Jiu-jitsu to wrestling, exactly. Those guys so were dominating. It, I mean, it was a great way to reintroduce the oldest art form known to man, which is basically rolling around on the floor holding onto someone if yeah. wrestling. Sure. But again, they then themselves became almost a victim of their own hype because they forgot that it's an evolving thing. People will adjust to that. They will adjust to something else. But they brought to the forefront, unless you're training under pressure, you can't fight under pressure. If you so, look, Sorry to cut you off, no, but okay. if you look at uh, Hoist Gracie from mm-hmm. UFCs 1 through 5, well, most blue belts would have beat that Hoist Gracie. Very probably. Right? Like, it's the, like modern-day blue belts, you're saying? Modern-day blue belts, that, uh, because the stuff that he was doing back then just wasn't, it didn't have that 20 years of evolution, that 20 years of just sharpening that sword to make it perfect. The Gracies were phenomenal back then, and they're phenomenal today, but they're nowhere near the same they were 30 years ago. Definitely not, and certainly within an MMA context, I think even a bog standard MMA club fight would have like you know done Hoist on his ass. But I mean, I, tra- I trained with Hoist actually not too long after the, f- the, the early UFCs. He did a UK tour, Very and cool. that was a hell of an experience. But I remember watching those grainy VHS UFCs in the UK because yeah. we couldn't get them. You know, <laughs> you know it's like pirate videos. Um, and then I got very very early versions of the Gracie tapes too. Yeah. So I got a lot of early exposure to the, to the Brazilian Jiu Jitsu thing. But one of the things I noticed with it was. Um, a lot of this is already in judo. It's already in, in wrestling. It's already in a lot of the other arts. It's just they train it differently. They emphasize it differently. So yeah. they had a much more cohesive strategy towards how they applied it within a combat situation. Yeah. So they took, for want of a simple, I mean, there's a, the old saying BJJ stands for basically just judo. But they then applied <laughs> it against... <laughs> the, but, no, I, I, uh, 
you know. Well, that's the base of it, right? Like the uh, yeah, Japanese took judo. Someone did yep. uh, Brazil or did jiu-jitsu from judo, and then they took that over to uh, uh, Brazil. Yeah, Count and, Coma. And those guys uh, then turned it into Brazilian jiu-jitsu, but it's all based off of what was originally judo. Yeah, okay, yeah. which came from jiu-jitsu. Correct. So the whole thing becomes this massive cycle and stuff. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but anyway, this is a... God, you start me rolling. What are you talking about? <laughs> I'm just talking. Um, but when I did the same thing with Havoc, um, we train um, uh, in a sporting context. So we apply the strikes with boxing gloves on, with MMA gloves on. We wrestle against each other. We then start to insert the bits and pieces in. The only rules we have is, and I was doing this way, way back before the UFCs were even big. When I was in the UK, I was under a guy called Jeff Thompson and Peter Constantine, who were the British Combat Association. Now, Jeff was arguably one of the more uh, uh, famous martial artists from a street perspective in the UK. He wrote a wonderful book called Watch My Back, which was a series of um, stories from when he was a bouncer working the doors in Coventry. So there's a lot of like what he found didn't didn't work with martial arts versus the studio and the, and the street application but jeff was a, a big advocate even back then of combining the system so the only rules i brought with when i was training with with jeff and and, and doing his stuff was if you touch the eye you, you just touch it rather than gouge it and if you bite you pinch with the teeth and let go yeah. those were literally the only rules we put in there in the very first club i had in the uk and we were literally like punching each other full power in the nuts we were headbutting each wow. other on the floor Dude, it, we thought this was a good idea at the time. It's not. It's, <laughs> it's really. Not. It's seriously. No. It's really. For yeah. any, to the listeners out there, this is a really stupid way to train. MMA guys right now are understanding that there's lots of them that go. I know how to fight. I don't need to do it every single yeah. week and beat my body up. Yeah. It just doesn't make sense. It's the mythos in this sort of pseudo. Well, unless we're literally killing each other every session, we're not working out. Right. It's the same people that when you have a two-hour, three-hour class, because my my sessions are in one-hour slots. They yeah. have it. Within that, we do a five to ten minute warm up, which we do like um, Indian calisthenics and things like that. Like you know, the gathers, the maces, the dams, the betaks, the the action strength, which is what my, my teacher taught me. Because if you're doing like a two hour class, but of that two hours, one hour is a warm up, and you're just doing a circuit push ups, crunchy squats, yeah. and there's a time and a place for that. That's not what you're paying me for to teach you. That should be if you can't there's get gym fit, trainers for yeah, that. If you can't get fit on your own time, don't come to me for it. You'll yeah. get fit by training with me by virtue of a, as a, as a byproduct. But it's always a fact that if you're trying to learn a fine motor skill and you're tired before you learn that fine motor skill, you're already impacting what's already t- difficult to learn. That's right. So yeah. you have to have that ability to, to be prepared to learn as well as prepared to fight. It's a good point you bring up, though, with uh, a lot of the, uh, what would you call it, um, fitness martial arts that's mm-hmm. popped, especially kickboxing, mm-hmm. the workout kickboxing. They're not telling you that they're te- this is just a fitness class. They, they brand themselves as a kickboxing club. And uh, I'm sure most people understand that you're not actually learning to fight in there for the fact that they don't spar, they're not putting fighters out. But a lot of people would probably assume that that's the same thing. And then when you come into a club that you're there to get a workout, not to learn how to fight. The problem is, is when you get that confused, when you think that you're there to learn how to fight and you're really just getting a workout. What do you? What kind of misconceptions are you now leaving with? That's definitely a dangerous situation that I don't think it's clarified nearly enough. It definitely isn't. Martial arts, in fairness, are the world's worst for doing that to the the, the, the customers and the people. Like they want to be all things to all people. It's tough to make money in it, the it martial really arts is. business, though. So it you can really understand is. how you, people fall into that sometimes. I can, but then it's a case of well, if you're in it for the money, you're in the wrong industry. You know? Oh, for <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> There, there's honesty in business, which helps you grow too, Correct. right? Like these Correct. these cardio boxing clubs that you say, well, mm. we do boxing <coughs> training. 
Well, you train like a boxer. You don't train to box, right? You can work heavy bags and speed bags and uh, battle ropes and do all the stuff a boxer does. Doesn't make you a boxer. It no, just it makes doesn't. you as fit as a boxer, maybe. And using those boxing techniques to manifest that. As long as you're honest about what you're doing. And this is someone once asked me, it's like, how do you know if a martial arts valid or not? Yeah. And my answer is always, does it give you what it promises? Yeah. If it does, it's valid. Right. Is that fitness? Is that friends? Is that a historical preservation? Is that, do you know what I mean? Yeah. But if you're going for like self-defense, and that's what martial arts sells itself as. Now, self-defense is my forte. And I know everyone says, oh yeah, I can teach you self-defense. Yeah, okay, great. Coming from the law enforcement background as well, I mean, I used to teach within the police. So I taught, taught the protectors, as it right. were. Um, I was recognized and still am as recognized as an expert on use of force within the UK and within Canada and within the United States. So at court level, I'm recognized as an expert on this. And I deliver lectures and um, one of my specialities is called aftermath, which is not just because anyone can teach you how to do something in a fight, you know, you know, wrap a chair around the head, come off the top rope with a match on an elbow. <laughs> but it's then you have to explain why you did that. And yeah. that's where everybody falls short. You know yeah. what I mean? So they always pay lip service to this run away if you can. But if not, then we'll teach you 72 ways to eviscerate someone in 10 seconds. Yeah. You're, you're doing a disservice because A, you're selling a, 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 a false confidence. But B, self-defense is a whole embracing strategy. You have to be able to do the moral, the ethical, and the legal dilemmas attached to that, the situational awareness, the preparedness. It's only about at most 10% of physical endeavor. Mm -hmm. but that's going to last 20 to 30 seconds. Yeah, and yeah do you know what I mean? spend two hours in court explaining why that guy's head's but, bleeding. But everybody, if you go to someone and say, can you teach me self-defense? The first thing they'll do is say, yeah, I'll teach you an eye gouge or a ball shot. Or, and it's the only, only focus on like, well, if you ever do a self-defense seminar with me, the first 30, to 30 minutes to an hour is about how to just watch where you're going without getting involved in that crap in the first place. Yeah. Um, and it's the same because the physical stuff is, you can get anywhere for that. Yeah. It's then the application, the, the, the what and the why, the when is the important bit that people miss in that self-defense. But yeah. people, again, they want to be shown as, well, yeah, you know, although my school specializes in yaido, sword drawing, I can teach you to defend yourself. <laughs> of course you can, sweetheart. Um, so it's, it's always been a bit of a bugbear in mind within the industry. Yeah. And if you really want to set me off, Send me a video of five self-defense moves every woman should know videos. <laughs> those, those videos of you critiquing them, are uh, they make my day every single time. I know that it's a, a, a point of contention for you, well, but so I, I taught self-defense for a while here in Airdrie, and I believe the same thing you do. Uh, it just didn't make me as angry as it did you, so I watch those videos. i got a big grin on my face. I'm like, oh, my goodness, look at them go. <laughs> Here's the thing, though. Me and Chad were just talking about this beforehand. I believe... I, I could be wrong. I'm willing to be wrong on this. I believe that any martial art out there, if you are a master in, is an effective way to defend yourself in a fight. Chad believes that there's some pretty hokey stuff out there that's not going to work no matter how good <coughs> you Sistema. are. Sorry, did I cough? <laughs> <laughs> What's well, I don't even remember the name of it. So the one that I pictured in my head that I knew wasn't going to be functional, there's videos all over the place of this one family uh, training in it, and they've got like the, the brick. Uh, the, the Russian, the, yeah, yeah, the yeah, yeah, Russian yeah, yeah. They, the they, they flick their legs up behind them and stuff. Yeah, and, and I'm like, yeah, if the kangaroo that punching. dude picked a fight with a 15-year-old boy that played a little bit of sports, that 15-year-old would... Beat the brakes off that guy. I wouldn't fancy his chances against a wet cardboard box, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> so that that was my defense to, yeah. to the, that argument. My point was with the self-defense videos, though. You do watch them and you're like, well, I could totally see that working. I can't see that working if you took one class and then five years later had to use it. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. You go do Krav Maga for the next 10 years every, you know, every night. 
of the week, you're going to be pretty good at doing those moves. You should be. You just, after that one week that they're selling you for that class, or maybe that one class entirely, you're not going to walk away with anything. And I think that's kind of the, the gap of misconception of, yes, it does work. No, it won't work after this one class. I think there's truth to that, and um, but I will also caveat it. Um, okay. So if I teach you how to do a push-up, you know, I can teach you five variations on push-ups, but you don't go away and do any push-ups, you're not going to get any fitter. That's not the push-ups fault, that's you. So in that sense, wow. you're absolutely right. So right. when you see techniques with people, well, I'll never work in a real fight. It's like, well, it does if you put the graft in, which comes back to the original point we were making where if you train under pressure, you fight under pressure. But then you see some of the stuff that they're teaching within these videos, it is mechanically unsound and tactically unsound. Yeah. And it wouldn't work if you know you had a bomb full of dynamite and you know you're just gonna explode and take your opponent with you. Still isn't gonna work. One of the critique videos I did, which is the one I got quite a bit of traction, was when I was just ranting for about ten minutes. Is that the one where the girl they said uh, you should lay down on your back and use your legs? Oh uh, no, the the, the uh, there's there's the cosmopolitan one um when she's like grabbing her wrist and ducking under and it's like none of this is gonna work. And, right. and Morgan bless her heart, she got a bit shit canned in that that type. <laughs> yeah, she's tough, she's a good girl. Um, but the one that really was the the bony hips one, um, the the, the uh, I remember that one. She was one that was gay. I forget her name, but she was I can't. She was some uh, stylist in New York, I think she was, and she was promoting these female self defense videos again. And it's all crap. It just yeah. doesn't work. If, if five moves did everything you needed, you'd have five move systems. Yeah. I mean, even the most stripped, pared down sports system, which is probably boxing, yeah. has more than five moves. Oh, for sure. You know, um, One of the things that when I was uh, teaching out here, I told people, like, you can come to my class and you're going to learn some stuff, but you're not even going to be good at it. You have to do it for long periods of time. It's like, I've probably thrown, I don't know, 15,000, 20,000 jabs to, to get good at a jab. That's mm -hmm. one move. That's all. It's what it takes to get good at it. Where And I, I wouldn't even say that if I stepped in the ring with a pro boxer, my jab's going to be pretty lame compared to that guy because he's throwing 100,000 mm -hmm. of them. And that's, that's the truth about a fight. If you go in and believe that you can walk down any street in North America when you've taken five self-defense classes or you've taken a, an a intensive weekend course, I'm like, you're probably going to die. So don't don't believe in it don't trust in it everything in life revolves around doing it regularly to go get it nobody is excellent the first time they do it and it's not going to work um, until you practice it over and over and over again yeah and that speaks to the point you were making about it mark as well you know it's not that it doesn't work in and of itself it doesn't work as presented and yeah, yeah it, it's it's frustrating because I don't know if it's a reflection of the society we live in as well, because like magic pill mentality. Yeah, very yeah. much so. The fitness yeah. industry, or, or or even now you've got guys like um, on Facebook saying, "Oh, you're working and grafting your whole life. Oh, look at me! I'm driving twenty cars and I can teach you my secrets." It's like, well, you know what, mate? If they were that good, you wouldn't be advertising shit. On maybe Facebook it, it. Maybe marketing is a good point in that though, because you think if it was possible to sell people to be doing their class like twice a week for the rest of their lives, that's pretty good marketing right yeah sure. so maybe it really is that magic pill mentality they know that they can't sell you more than one class do i yeah. want to sell someone an empty box because if you want that one payment probably i don't know. <laughs> no, I'd, I'd, I'd rather like just say if they come to me and i've had people actually say do you teach self-defense and i said well what i teach you can defend yourself with mm -hmm. and it's inherent with what i teach but i don't focus specifically on that yeah. i do one of seminars my turnover in terms of students that come from that isn't that high um, because I don't sell them rainbows and unicorns. Like I did a knife seminar the other week, and I 
you know, I opened it up with, you're probably going to die. It's However, funny. Let's, let's reduce your chances. Do you I've know done, what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> I've done quite a few knife fighting seminars and knife defense because that's, I don't know, I guess I'm that type of guy that does that. Um, and the ones where I walked away and I was like, I could see that potentially working, always started with just a heads up. You're going to get cut and you might die if you use these tactics. So don't walk away thinking that you're going to just dominate someone. If it's a knife fight, run away. Uh, if that's not an option, here's some, here's some things to try. The ones where it started off like, you do this and that guy is fucked. Those are the guys that I'm like, this is not going to be a stuff. good class. Instantly you tune out on those. Were you, did you do the Carly session with me? I can't remember. You did the wrestling. I uh, did catch wrestling. I did, did a little JKD. JKD. Well. I don't think you did the Carly session, did you? I think I might have, I did one Eskrema yeah, yeah, yeah. thing with yeah, you maybe. I, yeah. well, I would have liked to done a lot more, um, unfortunately, scheduling. I saw your new schedule works a lot better with my schedule these days, oh, so I might have to take I might a, see you another, back there. Yeah, I might yeah. have to see another well, look at that. We've been growing and moving forward from that, but like I always teach the um, the 30 rule. So if you like, especially when you're talking about knife combat as well, like if you've got a knife and I've got a knife and I'm better than you, you die. Yeah. If you've got a knife and I've got a knife and you're better than me, I die. If you've got a knife and I've got a knife and we're about the same, we both bleed out. So it's 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 a really horrible situation. Yeah. And then people always say, well, where's that 10%? And well, that's your chances of survival empty-handed. And yeah. that's if you do know your ass from a hole in the ground. If you don't, then that drops to five and lower. And that also presupposes there's a low skill level from a knife-wielding guy. When you've had someone bleed out in your hands and you're trying to like just hold their life inside them, it's quite a sobering experience. Yeah, it really is. And I've had that happen a couple of times, you know, in a professional capacity. Um, it's not pleasant. And you know, people, there's this mythos and this kind of like aura around knives. I mean, I'm always carrying a blade um, for you know cheesecake and cutting apples and, and string and stuff. I'm sure I could use it in a self-defense capacity if I had to. But that isn't, of course, why I carry it. Um, <laughs> but um, there's a lot of... Um, General Mattis, I think, had a great saying on that, didn't he? Yes, he did. Yeah. Um, um, if, uh, always carry a knife uh, in case you uh, need to kill someone or a cheesecake. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing well, worse than not having a knife for cheesecake. <laughs> True enough. God love a cheesecake. Uh, going back to what you're saying though about the, the you know even though the practicing the the ten percent that um, where they have a knife and you're empty-handed mm-hmm. you know you watch MMA guys and all the top guys now they don't spar they don't hit they just drill over, over and, and over, over and over again and again you just you have to break it down if you're not doing it every single day it's probably not going to work but doesn't that kind of bring up the debate about uh, sport versus reality. I'd argue it goes against pressure versus non-pressure, to be honest. Right. I mean, um, I've got a, a, a friend, I'm not going to mention him by name because he, he doesn't like it widely known, but he's a CCW permit carrier in the States, so I do a lot of... Um, What's CCW? Um, concealed... Um, concealed, uh, concealed weapon. Concealed carry weapon. Yeah. Um, so basically he carries a gun tucked in his kex. Yeah. Um, so um, <laughs> his um, he wants to deal against an edged weapon with the, the a view to deploying. So the structure and, and the class I teach for him is knife defense with a view that he has a, a response option most people do not. Yeah. But even then, I'll sometimes take his gun from him and we do you know, knife drills True over it. and over and over again. And if you see knife drills the way they're presented, um, if you're looking at it in isolation, it looks ridiculous. It's like, why? No one fights with a knife like that. Yeah. And it's a little like saying, well, you yeah, know, like the, uh, the horror the, movie. Yeah, the, old, the, the, the Tomahawk. The, the, the Jim Carrey um, yeah. karate champion <laughs> schedule. Yeah. 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 But we do a very, so I'll take a drill called the U drill, for example. So if you imagine like the, the umlaut, the German umlaut, so you've got the U with the two dots at the top, that's basically the U drill. So it's a dot, a slash, and a dot, and you just repeat that. And it's just teaching you to flow through the movement. 
Um, my teacher, um, Sifu Singh, um, he does that on stage with, with me and with other people. He gets a live blade, slices an apple in half, and it's his high-performance zone talk, and then he literally tries to eviscerate us on stage. Um, you don't fight that way, but it gives you a series of hard-wise visceral responses that you can then employ within a fighting context. Right. A boxer doesn't get in a ring and skip. Right. But it gives him cardio, timing, balance, <laughs> rhythm, and, that, and yeah. that's what he then applies to the fight. So if you take that concept, so I, I, anyway, I work with this, uh, this guy, and um, he, he's been doing with me for about two years now. He's really, really super, super nice guy. But he trains um, in town with an, another um, uh, guy, I'll give him a, a plug on the air, Brad Cardinal. BJJ guy, top, top guy. If, if anyone wants to go for good BJJ, Brad Cardinal's a fantastic place to go to. Where's he out of? Um, he teaches, well, Cardinal um, MMA and Jiu-Jitsu, I think. I'd have to Google his address. He'll okay. kill me. You got a free plug. I'm not Googling his address. It's, it's, in, it's in Calgary, though? It's in Calgary, yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, he was um, king of the cage middleweight champ, I believe, as well. Nice. Um, super, super nice guy. I've known him a few years now. He used to work the doors when Roadhouse was Roadhouse. Okay. Um, really, really knows his stuff. But when Brad, and, and this is this is why I love the martial arts community when it works well, because this guy said to, to Brad, I want to learn to work against the knife, I want to learn to work against the gun. And Brad said, well, I can show you what I know, yeah. but it's not my forte. However, I know a guy that can probably help you. So then Brad just texted me and sent me a message. He goes, hey, Jay, I got a guy who wants to do knife work. What a, what a hero. He could have quite easily sold a package of goods, yeah. as we were talking about, made his money, oh, yeah, I'll do private, whatever. But no, because the, the guy had a genuine need. And Brad sorts someone out. So if someone says to me, I want to compete in grappling or in, in boxing or whatever, it's not that I can't help them with that. I can. It just isn't what I focus on. So I would mm -hmm. find another club to send them to. You know, yeah. Another good friend of mine, Chad Sawyer, if they want to do competitive Muay Thai, I'd send them to Chad Sawyer. BJJ, you know, Brad Cardinal, whoever it happens to be. But Brad came to one of our sessions once. And again, I mean, he's a BJJ black belt, top, top guy, MMA fighter. And, and I think in the first 10 seconds, like he was just laughing because he died mm -hmm. 15 times. He was just like <laughs> gutted. And it wasn't that his skills don't work. It's just he hadn't applied them within a knife-based context. Yeah. Within 20, 30 minutes, he was golden because he just had to do a slight paradigm switch in his head. Right. The skill set's already there. You just need the context yeah. behind it and how you then apply it under a slightly different set of circumstances. But of course, when it first happens to you and then that happens to be for real yeah. you don't have 20 or 30 minutes to have that context <laughs> no. behind it then it goes back to practicing it every day like every the, day yeah. it's a it's a lifestyle thing knife fighting is tricky for the fact that unlike most martial arts it has a very uh small margin of error yeah i think what people don't understand is you could be a very high level boxer you could be a very high level muay thai fighter something where there's a distance involved mm -hmm. it's very easy to touch your opponent um, they'll let you, even if they try to stop you, you can still touch them. It's those power strikes that they're really looking for. Mm -hmm. The problem with a knife is if you touch somebody with a knife, you cut them. And like they say, there's the, you know, death by a million cuts. Eventually those cuts will add up Absolutely. and, yeah. uh, it's, man, it's hard. It's hard to make someone not touch. We, one time my boxing club, we had uh, a knife seminar. We gave a little kid a, a Sharpie. Mm -hmm. Everyone took off their shirts and they're like, don't hurt the kid but stop him from touching you with the Sharpie. Everyone left covered I, in I don't marks. like these rules already. I yeah. know, right? <laughs> <laughs> Slap. I, I'm guessing his defense of... His, the, the kid carrying the, the pen didn't have a good defense. You could have... No. No, 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 he just, the kid just kind of walked up and tried, like, he just chased you essentially and yeah. tried to and stab you and shot at you all the time. not being able to punch the kid. It's like, That's what, I mean, what are you yeah. going to do to stop him from slashing you? It's, yeah. you'd think you'd be like, well, it's just a kid. I'll just hold his hand or get out of the, no, you know, he's going to touch you with that. One of the interesting things as well is though, and this again speaks to one of the largest um, pieces within martial arts and, and indeed um, self-defense concepts as a whole. Um, most people lack the mental capacity to kill someone. 
most people can't hit someone properly as well. I mean, you're teaching someone self-defense. I mean, Chad, no, you've done this a few times yourself. Like, oh, I don't think I could do that. So I, I had a full-grown man. He, we were doing uh, boxing drills, just to back up what you were saying. And I said, go ahead and throw the punch. And, then, and we were just working on a parry. And he would constantly keep the punch six or seven inches away from his partner. Mm. I'm like, no, 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 try to hit me. Like, and he's like, I don't want to do it. He didn't want to hit anybody. And I think that's what you're saying. A majority of the population is like that. They don't they like don't. that feeling. They can't do it. And it's a big psychological jump. I mean, without wishing Tom tells out of school, but... I've been thumb knuckle deep in someone's eye once. They're still going. Mm-hmm. So then you switch tactics. I've had my fingers touching on the back of someone's throat. I've been heel stamping someone. I've had all sorts of situations where I've been going full ball because that was what the situation necessitated and demanded at that time. Yeah, I've had situations where I've said, come on, off we go. And that worked. But you have to have that at the bottom end. Just turning up and sort of raising an eyebrow a la Dwayne Johnson and then watching them walk off. And then you're in that gunfight, battle, life or death and everything in between. Yeah. Um, if you're not prepared to go to that back, that that top line, yeah. you're not prepared. Period, because you're going to hit that point where your entire system shuts down because you have no ability to process beyond that point. I truly believe that humans are very similar to animals. If you saw two bears come head to head in the in the bush, and one definitely had a more fight experience, more battle experience, the other bear is going to go. I'm uh, not that hungry. And he's going to move on to something Absolutely else. And, and human beings, you see that all the time too, where you can just stand up and say, dude, don't fucking do that again. And they're like, oh, sorry, and I won't. And then there's other guys go, no, you can't do that to me. And they'll they'll stand up. And that's when you know you're just going to take it to that next level. Um, trying to teach that. So th- this is one of my challenges in self-defense was uh, lots of women that we taught that we would say, well, these techniques will probably work if the guy is drunk, he's not paying attention, whatever. But mm-hmm. the truth of the matter, men are so much stronger than women. Even if they don't have the skill sets, those women's skill sets have to be 10 times higher than what a guy of the same size would be. And trying to get it across to them to have that, uh, I can see here, uh, to, to get the confidence across, like, listen to me, this isn't going to go good for you. And it's more carrying that and knowing that truly inside you most guys, most crooks, bad guys, touchers, mm-hmm. whatever, are going to try to steer clear of that Did woman. You say touchers? Well, I don't, I don't know what right <laughs> name to call them. <laughs> well, most they want they want um, opo- uh, victims, not opponents. Correct. Um, yeah. So, right, you think like I mean, I always use the example of the wasp. Yeah. No one wants to piss a wasp off. Right. I mean, in reality, unless you go into anaphylaxis, it ain't going to do shit. It's just like a minor like eh, kind of things. But everyone's like, as soon as a wasp comes in, yeah. you can have the biggest, toughest guy in the room. You put a wasp near his head, and he just freaks out. Yeah. But it doesn't actually represent a physical threat. It's just this little stripey ass bastard, and it's going to do something to you that you're not going to like. Yeah. And that's what you have to instill in people from a self-defense perspective. Right. Yeah. Just be a stripey ass bastard. You oh. don't have to be a, a honey badger. Absolutely. Yeah. The best way to avoid a fight is to be the scariest guy in the room. Yeah. That mind you, that's only going to draw the scariest guys that are going to want to fight you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is actually true. You can, there is that target aspect to it. There was um, one of the worst guys in Manchester. Um, he was a, a little shithead, and I'm using the word little. Um, literally, he was about five six and about a buck forty, but he had a reputation for being one of the worst gangsters. And it wasn't that he was tough; he wasn't. It wasn't that he could fight well; he couldn't. Um, but he was fearless, and he used to intimidate people because um, it's interesting. You talk about the um, the fear people have as animals, which is true. Which is uh, it's primeval, it's visceral. That's our adrenal responses. Yeah. So fight, flight, or freeze. Um, the freeze one is the one that gets triggered a lot because. The sight predators that we used to escape from back in the day, like, okay, don't move and you won't see me. So we still have that as, as an intrinsic response right. value. 
Um, then you add societal conditioning. That's a big one. It's, it's huge. It really is. Like in school, if someone hits you, go and tell the teacher, you don't hit them back. Well, just I walk around. I, I would love so much if someone would just pick a fight with me. It's just over, anywhere, it, anytime. It's overrated. And the few, well, I'm, sure, I'm sure, I'm sure it is. The few times that I've had that situation, I've, I've hesitated and went like, oh, should I really fight this guy? Yeah. And then next thing you know, it's the, the opportunity's passed and yeah. Chad's now yelling at him in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like literally, like I would love nothing more than to have someone put me in a position where I was totally justified in defending myself. And uh, the few times it's happened, I've hesitated and I've lost that opportunity. So purely from social conditioning. It is. So, yeah. and, but again, that's that legal and moral ethical underpinning I was talking yes. about earlier on. Yeah. But can I hit this guy? It's like, yeah. you know, I, the, and it's one of the first things I do in self-defense, so I'm going to give my secrets away now. So anyone listening to the podcast, if you can. Can I just cut you off for sure. a second? Because you asked the question, can I hit this guy? Yeah. I think the better question is, can I explain why I hit this guy? Ah, right? there you go. That that I always, from being a little kid, went, I can hit this guy. As long as I'm polite when the cops or the teacher or the supervisor <laughs> shows up, they're like, oh, he's a really sweet kid. He probably <laughs> was pushed into that. And Smoke that and mirrors. Or Smoke growing mirrors. up in Surrey, as long as I'm still white when the police show up. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, that, I mean, that is actually, I mean, it's intrinsic within the question because a lot of people are like, when can I strike? When can I attack? And yeah. the, the first thing I do when I do self-defense courses or indeed any brief course that's not a consistent ongoing classes um i say right and i normally pick out someone that's never done any training or anything before because they're the ones that you want to show and i i make a big show of putting on boxing gloves mm-hmm. okay and crack the neck out and the, <laughs> the gum very theatrical yeah. very theatrical and i say right you're not in any danger okay but i want you to tell me when to stop okay yeah. i won't hit you but when you feel like I'm going to hit you, when you, when that you you know when you feel the attack and you sense the attack, I want you to stop. So say stop. Okay, and I say okay, right, right. So of course the reason you do the big theatrics is of course you're giving them a bit of an upload. What the hell's the going posturing on? Posturing up. Yeah, and the, the, yeah. The heart starts going, <laughs> you know. Um, and so I then just start doing hourly shuffle and moving around with my Tyson a bit. And the idea is, of course, when I start to go and throw a punch, I go stop. Now my record is about fifty seconds. Yeah. Now, of course, the attack starts the minute I slap my gloves together because you don't need for wait for me to throw a punch. The attack is more than just the physical act. It's the demeanor. It's the way the person talks. It's the way they carry themselves. If I'm stood across a room and I'm like, is this a family show? Yeah. Okay. No, no, no. It's whatever okay, you want. Yeah. Well, it's for I, my yeah. fucking family. Yeah, so. <laughs> there you go. Now we're talking. But if I'm stood across, if I'm like across the bar, like, oh, fuck fakes, what are you looking at? That fight's now on. Yeah. How that resolves itself, it may or may not become physical, but I've now initiated that action. Yeah. Okay. So the threat and my ability to respond to that threat, there's nothing under law or indeed I would say under a moral obligation which says you can't ding the guy first. Yeah. As long as you didn't go, oh, fuck not. And then when he turns around, then you got him. Now you've got a problem because that, you that's did initiate. That's the old rule, right? Like, don't throw the first punch. Yeah. And that's it's just a bad way to get it's into terrible. a fight. It's terrible. <laughs> it's the it's worst. You know, if you wait, because the thing is, now you're reactive. Action yeah. beats reaction every time. And if you're teaching a self-defense system, which is based on either a block and go or wait for the attack and then respond to it, it's instantly set up for failure. Right. It won't work. Yeah. Unless your attributes and your skill level is sufficiently high that you can pretty much do that at will. Right. You're already setting them up for failure. You're Floyd Mayweather. You yes. can do that. System, yeah, you can get away everybody with that. Everybody else can get away do with it. that. So but, legally speaking, though, with that point, at what point do you legally say that you were justified in hitting that person? And at what point do you need to stop hitting that person? When they stop twitching. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> so what you're saying is hit them hard enough that they go into a seizure. That's the one. Then you can just keep hitting them because it's still moving. Mm. Um, <laughs> no. It, 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 or I mean, downstairs. It's very, very vanilla, um, the, 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 the advice I'm now going to 
to pass out, but it, it, it's relatively fast and true. Is the threat that's coming to you imminent? If it's imminent, you can deal with it. If you believe it's imminent. If you believe it's imminent, yeah. So I'm a, is this fight about to go off? Yeah, so I don't need to wait for it to go off. If I've exhausted all my other options and there's nothing else... Really is there a way to define it. what imminent means? Imminent means it's about to happen right here. So it's like imminent is like not within the next second. It could be, right, I can't get out for whatever reason. Maybe I'm there with a partner or a group of people and I have to look out for them too. So it's an escalation. Yeah, maybe I have place. a job. So I can't just walk away because if I walk away, something else is going to happen. So if you can get away, fine. Okay. Always take that option because that's the lowest level response option. Sometimes if someone says, you know, you spilled my drink, you asshole. Can I walk away? No. Can I buy this guy another drink? Yeah, maybe that will work. So there's all sorts of things you can do to mitigate it. And again, these are what we call the softer skills versus the harder skills. If the confrontation is going to be imminent, then you're allowed to engage with that individual with whatever force is needed to stop that imminent threat. Now, if someone's got a knife, that threat's significantly higher. If someone's moving, bobbing, and weaving, that threat's high too. If someone's so pissed drunk they can barely stand, although they may be aggressive, angry, and wanting to hurt you, the chances of being able to manifest that is relatively low. I'm not saying drunk people aren't dangerous, but you get the idea. Yeah. So there's all these other factors come into it, size, strength, weight, shape, armed, unarmed, skill level, whatever it happens to be. There's a million and one things that can come in before you decide to engage. When you do engage, um, you can employ whatever skill set you possess. The time that you cease to engage is when that threat has now passed. So in other words, if I crack a guy and he like falls flat on his asshole and he's joking, all right, all right, all right, it's done. Don't right. kick him in yeah, the don't, face. Yeah, don't boot him just for extra, you know. <laughs> so be ready to, because yeah. he might come back at you. Right. But, but you have to have that control. But again, this comes with skill, with training, with time. I used to, uh, in I worked security in Vancouver's Chinatown. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty rough area. Whenever somebody... Would I'd get into a confrontation with them. I would always be yelling out loud, I don't want to fight you. I don't want to do this anymore. Please stop. Yeah. As I'm just wailing on them. on them. And then everybody around goes, oh, he just, he, you know, he just did what he had to do. And, of course, knowing the police officers down there was very helpful as well. It is. It the, is. The, uh, you made me think of a book when you were talking. There's a book, and I can't remember the author's name right now, but it's called The Gift of Fear. Uh, Becca. Becca, yes. Uh, and it's a great book. That he kind of describes it or breaks it down when you should, you know, try to escape or, or attack inside that book is, is when you feel that fear. If that mm-hmm. person is inflicting even verbal abuse on you where you feel fear like, oh, this is really escalated past where I like it, you're allowed to uh, strike out if you yeah. can't uh, get out of the room. And I think on we have a pastor that uh, uh, the church we're going to where he uh, talks about Canadian culture being just so passive and so apologetic and so um, just laid back. And that's an issue, right? That that allows for somebody that's, um, you know, aggressive or a thief or whatever, because, well, what are they going to do? They're all this way. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you feel like this is a threatening situation, you need to deal with it accordingly. Absolutely. And then whether that's striking back or running away, whatever the options are, take yeah. them right away. And you have to. Um, and, and again, if you, all you've got in your toolbox is gout, rip, tear, kill, eviscerate, in, and it just needed a shove, yeah. although you're in a position where you should have defended yourself, it equally doesn't mean that the tool you choose is the appropriate tool. It, it's an incredibly complex subject. It really is because sport fighting, to use the, the term which I dislike because I don't like that distinction, but we'll take sport fighting to, to be boxing, MMA, wrestling, whatever it happens to be. 
um, you know the rules of engagement. You know that you're going to be fighting this person. So then it becomes a techniques and a strategies and who's faster, who's stronger. Fa- yeah, outthinking. You know, counter. Well, putting yourself in a vulnerable position. Yeah, yeah. But, but there's the there's laws prevent or not laws. The rules prevent you from getting like you know that when you triangle choke someone, they're not going to bite your <laughs> testicles. But even taking that into account and even leaving that out of it, you know that there's going to be a fight, and you know that your you, all you have to worry about is your ability to enforce your will on that individual within that circumstances. When you're outside of that environment, you then have to say, is this fight inevitable? Am I in a position where I can employ my tactics? Is this the right tactic? Do I go lower? Do I go higher? So you've already got a much broader range of outcomes. Very high level of problem solving. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you imagine doing that like under pressure when all of a sudden someone comes out and starts to fight with you instantly. Unless you've drilled this mentally and physically over and over and over again, you're not going to respond in the same way, which is why you can get some of the most physically capable individual out there will either go OTT or won't know what to do because they have to make those continuous decisions and assessments, what they call the Uber loop, observe, orient, decide, act. they in that constant loop and they don't know how to engage it. So one of the things that I always try and do at Havoc and Esteem is, um, and my, a, a very good friend of mine, John Titchen, is one of the only other people I know that does this, we do scenario-based training. So sparring, I'm a big fan and big advocate of sparring, or pressure-based. Definition training. of a functional martial art. Yeah, you know, do you spar? And, but even sparring has context within that. So kickboxing clubs spar, but they don't grapple. So they have to fill that gap within their training. Even if they don't grapple, they have to be able to address the grappler if they're going to claim to be well-rounded. So it has to be pressure-based training in some way. But scenario-based training isn't just now we're in a fight. It's like, well, are you? Yeah. Do you do the fight? Are you? And so there's a whole thing you can do, and I normally have several exits built within the scenarios that will not end in fights if that route is selected. Nice. I, I have, The first one I do is just a simple ATM. And this is actually more to teach awareness. Um, and uh, <laughs> two of my students, one was, um, uh, was Sarah Jade, a.k.a. the Morrigan. Another one was a, a friend of mine called Brian, a.k.a. the Prodigy. And he went up to do his ATM drill. Morrigan went up behind him, and they ended up literally in a pitch brawl within <laughs> like 12 seconds. They were just literally <laughs> knocking lumps off it. I was like, okay, time, time, time. Yeah. Whereas that wasn't how it was supposed to go down. But what happened was he was trying to do the the deconfliction hey what's going on you know calm down piece but his body language wasn't conveying that he was touching and pushing whoa whoa i don't want to but he's he was in his head he was trying to calm it down morgan being morgan he jacked her up straight away and she's like feisty as hell so of course she was like throwing um, bombs at him it it just degenerated quickly and it was an interesting illustration of how even a very very confined simple scenario can go one of two ways 50 percent of the people ended up getting robbed yeah 50% 50% walked away, one had a pitch battle. Yeah. Um, <laughs> great. I, I like those odds. I used to have a technique that I would use, not for everybody, I knew the right time to use it, but when I was down in Chinatown, if something was going wrong mm-hmm. and some guy was very aggressive in my face, especially if he was larger than me, I would lower my head just a little bit, change my posture a little bit, and then I would offer my hand for a handshake. And that would bring them down so quickly. And to find a guy that won't shake your hand is... It just didn't happen that often. No mm-hmm. one turned me down. So as soon as the handshake came in, pull, hit the elbow, drop him to the ground, and then the fight was over. There was no, but I had already taken some of the fight out of him already going, oh, this guy's collapsing. He's not going to allow, or he's not going to attack back. And so like you were saying, the two guys that went into the full-on uh, brawl was one's like, oh, yeah, I'm pretty tough. And the other guy's like, oh, yeah, not as tough. As, and then the brawl is on. And you can do the same thing with crooks and criminals. Absolutely. Not every single time. but uh, The problem, though, is 
there's people out there who, as soon as you touch them, you enter that physical realm with them. You've, you've changed the standard in their mind of what Abs- a threat is. One yeah. million. If you don't want to hit someone, don't touch them. Correct. Yeah. Ever. ever. It's yeah. an. I mean, if like if, want- if I'm in public and someone walks up to me and puts their hand on my shoulder. I'm fighting back the urge to hit them, even if they're like, hey, how's it going? Can I, you know, can I give you a hand? I'm like, I'm going to fucking hit you if you don't take your hand off me. <laughs> in absolute letter of the law, or even the slightest touch is an assault if it's unwarranted. Oh, okay. Now, is it defensible? Yeah, of course it is. If I just say, hey, look, you know what, buddy, and I just gently touch you. Right. And I guess that's what, what you're saying. At that point, you could say, could you please not touch me? Yeah, it's context dependent, but technically it qualifies an assault because I'm not inviting you to touch me if I don't know. Right. You. So but your chance of getting that as a prosecution is yeah. virtually zero, but it, it fits the criteria. So, another question. Uh, this kind of goes down to the old the old myth of martial arts in uh, the legal sense now if i'm so dangerous that my hands are <laughs> registered as lethal weapons <laughs> at what point in time do you have to consider the fact that someone's a trained fighter when they engage in a, what potentially could be criminally assault would that as be up to the judge at that time well because they always say like if you know we all train martial arts i'm sure you've been told like if you ever find yourself in front of a judge do not admit that you're it's a trained fighter bollocks no, okay. That's yeah. absolute bollocks. That's, again, it's people that aren't going off on one again. People that don't know what the fuck they're talking about. Right. Projecting what they think will happen on a scenario. Right. Okay. If you're in a situation where you cannot articulate what you did and why you did it, that's not a fault of you being a martial artist. That's a fault of you not being prepared legally for what you did. Right. right. So if you said and say to the judge, well, I was a trained martial artist, a lethal physical force guy. And actually, this is a true story. This happened to me in court. I was on the bench and I'd had a guy that I'd... Um, administered a physical um, full contact sign language lesson to. And, um, <laughs> Interactive. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> free, free martial arts demo, touch here. Um, and so what happened is when I was in there, the defense lawyer um, actually said, so um, I understand you're, you're an expert in these martial arts. This is absolutely true. The court record will be out there. And I said, well, actually, yes, I am. And he said, would you mind telling me your history? And I said, yes, I've done this, 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 I've done this. And I went into it. And he said, oh, well, so it's safe to say that you're an expert in these matters then. So, of course, I'm now thinking, well, you're an idiot because you're now entering me as an expert on witness. Yeah. With no, and I know for a fact he didn't have a rebuttal witness. So I'm like, okay, fair enough, I'll let him roll with it. I said, yeah, it's probably fair. Well, in that case, couldn't you surely solve this situation without resorting to such tactics? And I was like, no, I couldn't. If I could have done, I would have done. And yeah. I said, I'll tell you exactly why. But then I told him why I did what I did, how I did what I did, what the pro- what the prompting was for it, what the justification was for it. So if you don't know why you did something, then yes, it can be bad. If as a martial artist, you've just like, you know, put someone in the hospital. But if they needed to go in the hospital, they needed to go. You being a martial artist is largely irrelevant to that fact because right. it doesn't change anything. It really doesn't. It, it does bring in the, the question, though, of what is a reasonable use of force. And you'd mentioned this earlier in regards to law mm-hmm. enforcement. Um, recently, uh, I noticed you posted a video of uh, two, I think it was Texas, yeah, uh, the two law the, enforcement. Yeah, the two highway guys. Yeah, and they obviously had very minimal uh, martial arts skill trying to take down um, a oh, person yeah. at a traffic stop. <clears throat> now, Side I was watching this video and not knowing how it was going to go, I see that they both end up tasing this guy. And I'm thinking to myself, this is incredibly... Violently, like, this is a huge overusage of force that these officers are using on this guy to try and restrain him. Yeah, they don't really know how to control person very well, but they're going over the top with these tasers. Fast forward a few seconds, both of these cops are shot. Mm-hmm. So, and you're going, oh, maybe they should have tased him more. Um, you can't really have that hindsight in a physical altercation, especially when you factor a lot of people will have one in their entire lives, mm-hmm. maybe. Right. So, 
as a martial artist, and I guess even to some degree as a police officer, how do you know what you're doing? What, what you're doing is a reasonable. Like if someone comes at me and I'm like, this guy looks like he might be a trained fighter. He definitely wants to do some damage to me. I'm going to grab him by his ears and just give him a flying knee to the face. And next thing you know, the guy is now in a wheelchair with a massive brain injury. Um, and he didn't technically even hit you, but you deemed him to be a big enough threat to do it. That was what you deemed to do. And under the circumstances, like, what are you supposed to do? Sit down and do math? Well, this is, well, yeah, actually, ironically, you are. But again, it comes down to what are you used to seeing? And again, see this whole, the, the complexity of that question, this is why you don't go to any school for just self-defense. You right. have to go to the right school for it. Um, so, okay, you, these guys come up to you and you say, right, he looks like he's a trained fighter. So my first question is, what makes you think that? Right. Is it the movement? Is it the posture? Is it the hands? Is it, is it the cauliflower ears? Exactly. Maybe, oh, I'm, exactly. maybe I'm just scared. <laughs> Everyone's a trained <laughs> but, fighter now. But, but straight away, you see how Chad came up. Then, oh, he's got cauliflower ears. He's got like a thick neck. His trapezius goes into his shoulders. Okay, so straight away, wrestler is what we're thinking of this. Yeah. But you've got those unseen cues. Right. When the, when the posture comes in, his head cracked from side to side and his hands came to chest height. Okay, so these little cues are doing it. What's making you think he's going to initiate an attack to you? Well, his head's down, he's protecting his chin, he's narrowed his eyes, he's pacing from side to side, his communication's gone monosyllabic. All these bits and pieces then factor into it. Yeah. Any justification is a balance of objective and subjective measures. Okay, so if someone's in a wheelchair, objectively they're a lesser threat than someone that's a six foot five, 280 pound wrestler. That's, right. ob that's objective. If that person in the wheelchair has got a knife and no one else sees it, then... Is that objective? Yeah, it is because they've got a knife, but it's subjective from that person seeing you give someone in a wheelchair a good kicking. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, why did yeah. he do it? You then have to fill in that blank. You're the one telling the story as to why you did your actions. And the only advice I ever say to people is, A, get a lawyer because you have to tell them that story. B, always tell the truth. If yeah. you lost your rag and chin someone, tell them that. Right. Because there's always, again, this is where the problem comes in. When people start lying about one thing, even if it's a small thing, everything else then gets tainted with that lie. Yeah. So you have to be honest with what you did and why you did it. And if someone says, why did this happen? And the answer is, I don't know. Then that's your answer. Yeah. I don't know. Don't try and fill in. Don't try and put those gaps in there. So what becomes reasonable is, were the steps I took at that moment reasonable when that threat? You know, if, you, if you'd have told the guy to fuck off where you're gone, yeah, then that was reasonable. If the guy's got like, you know, a face spread over one side of his face, a scar under his eye, and it's like you say, excuse me, sir, I'm not really bothered about engaging in about a fisticuffs with you right now. Would you care to delay our encounter? Unlikely to work with him. So that's probably not going to reach when the circumstances. But again, you have to take everything on its own merits. Best recollection for when you've had any physical encounter is about 24 hours after it happens. So yeah. never say anything until 24 hours. Okay. That kind of falls into like the uh, first-hand accounts is tend to be the worst accounts. They're terrible because you're already up there. Unless you've had, again, I'm actually pretty good at it because I've had, I think I, I worked it out, I've had about somewhere between 1,200 to 1,500 physical encounters and violent encounters. Of those, yeah. about 300 were like really seriously violent. Right. Um, like, so you've had a process maybe in yeah, place? You, you yeah, you get used to it. But it's like anything you do. I mean... When we were taught to drive in the police force, we do what's called the narration of the drive. So you're saying, okay, so I'm in my vehicle, check now, seatbelt coming in, click mirror, put it in position. And everything you do, you talk. And it's a pain in the backside, it really is. Yeah. Okay, so It mirror, works, though. It does, because you get so used to viscerally doing that right. driving that you know what you're doing. So what I did is when I was teaching self-defense, I said, well, hang on, why don't we apply this same concept to just walking down the street? 
So I'm walking down the street, okay, as I'm walking down here, I'm taking a slightly wider angle from this corner. Why am I doing that? Because as I take a wider angle, it gives me an earlier view of what's going around that corner, so I can't get surprised. Person over there, okay, they've got their hands in the pockets of the camera, oh, they've gone past me, no problem anymore. So you're always narrating these things as it's going on. Right. So you're constantly aware of these things. And eventually, you don't even know you're doing it. You really don't like when you're scanning. It becomes part of your culture. It does. It becomes yeah. It just becomes embedded. You're making me feel like I'm crazy. This is literally <laughs> how I live my life. <laughs> like but, questioning everything I do and everything that's happening but, around me. But everything we do is a choice. It's up to ourselves as to what level of relaxation we're willing to engage with in our life. I'm a lot more relaxed ever since I left the police because it's not my job anymore. Yeah. Arguably, I have a moral obligation if things are going really bad. But as a general rule... The consequences are different. Exactly. I just don't I don't really phase a lot of the stuff that as a police I'd be interested in, perhaps in intelligent development. Or, but now I just don't care about that sort of thing anymore. If it's an imminent threat to me or someone else, I'll deal with it. Yeah. If someone's trying to steal something from a shop, yeah, I might. But outside of that, I just don't have the same engagements anymore. But I'm still cognizant of what's going on around me. My house is zombie-proof, so it's... <laughs> you never That's know. Awesome. You never know. So is that relaxing for you, or oh, do you yeah. feel like you, it's more of a relaxation than it is a lack of skill? In I your don't mind? know. I'm doing it, so right. it, it gets to the point where it's such a part of how I'm doing. It's like breathing for me now, yeah. and it's one of the things. When we the last um, time I was in California training my my teacher and his group, um, I mean, admittedly, I was in the service at the time. There was a, a guy came on. And I knew what was going to happen straight away, but no one else had tricked into him because they were having fun, they were in a moment. But I and I, I was too, but because of my peripheries, it was like straight away, okay, this is going to go squirrely, and it did. So I actually engaged him from about thirty foot away because I couldn't get there in time. Mm -hmm. And he went to steal something from someone's bag, and he actually walked right through the middle of the group to do it because oh, wow. it was an incredible experience. And I just shouted it, and everybody froze, yeah, including him, and he ran off. Wow, um, but you just get a sense for how some people you do. are. Yeah. You do, but you, but you, ha if you've not dealt with it, you can't blame people for not knowing this, right? Yeah, because if you've not, you know, you can't blame people for not knowing what a, what water feels like if they've never been in it. I think about it like the guys that train uh, alligators and bears and stuff yeah. like that. They're around them all the time, so they know their movements, they know their mo uh, moods, and and uh, what they're going to do. Absolutely. So if they're well fed and you do this, well, then you don't have to worry about it. But if you know we missed a meal and whatever happened, then well, we're not going to do this today because yeah. they're going to be a completely different. They'll, well, people are also very that. detached. Like they walk through the world trying to not notice everybody else. It seems. Yeah. I wanted to ask you a question about uh, um, back to the law thing. I know we keep going back to the police. It's not what you do anymore. No, okay. the, uh, but the, now you can tell us. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> now I can tell you all the stories. <laughs> the, uh, the one time where I think uh, uh, martial arts actually played a role in the punishment of somebody was uh, War Machine when he beat up his uh, wife, the, mm. the, the porn star, where the judge actually said specifically, you have this massive ability and what you did was over and yep. above, um, even considering that, you know, what she does and all this. So that he was probably punished harder because of what he did. And not saying he shouldn't have been, because I think what he did was horrific. Absolutely. Uh, where uh, that can play a role. So I just wanted to kind of state that we're not trying to teach criminals the right way to talk to a judge. No, and, absolutely and not. That, that, that uh, you, you made it very clear earlier that speaking the truth, right? So uh, if that, your that intent was to go in there and beat the daylights out of somebody, yeah. well, just say, this was my intent. <laughs> but what, and, and that's the thing as well. War Machine, um, I'm taking that scenario, his actions were illegal from the get-go. So, yeah. of course, any Correct. additional skill is going to make the illegality worse. Not only shouldn't you have done it, you're really good and you shouldn't have done it. That's so, right. yeah, in that case, it will factor into it. But the fact, the fact he was a martial artist isn't relevant 
unless the action itself becomes illegal. He wasn't defending himself. Correct. He wasn't protecting Correct. his body or his family. But I mean, you say you got your trained martial arts. I'll, I'll, um, and the, obviously, this was not what happened at all. But if she, you stood there, and all of a sudden she comes up with a knife. Yeah. Boom, boom, boom. Now he's Different trained martial arts, but now he's legally placed with his action. Yeah, I think right. the only argument you could have made was for brain damage potentially. Yeah, but again, but, it, but that's not what it was about. No, it's so, not exactly. Yeah. But I mean, you could argue that for brain damage. Yeah. But if someone's coming at you with a knife, but yeah, within that circumstance, the threat sure. level's already at a point whereby, um, I mean, the threat level and threshold um, is typically grievous bodily harm yeah. or risk of death to yourself or another individual. When you can choose to employ lethal force back, you don't have to. Yeah. And again, if you have an option that isn't lethal force, we suggest you take it. Um, but if someone's already at that threshold, then you're clear. Yeah, but in that case, he was very much the criminal. He was Absolutely. the attacker. Oh, sure. She was Absolute the defender. And she just was not very good at it, but, obviously. But look at that other scenario that's just uh, come up in the States with the guy that um, started a fight, got pushed over, and then shot the guy. Right. Now he's, mm. uh, and, and rightfully, he's up for manslaughter on now. It's ridiculous. You can't start a fight lose it, and then shoot the guy and claim self-defense. It's like, well, no. It's, you know, <laughs> hello. And humans do it all the time, right? We, we walk out in the woods and get attacked by a bear. Well, now that bear's got to die. Yeah. No With that yeah. said, though, I think criminal or victim, attacker, or whatever it is, I think everyone deserves the same understanding of how the law works. Absolutely. Yeah, from absolutely, it. yeah. Like, I don't think saying that, like, well, no, criminals should be ignorant to the law. I don't really think that's... No, it doesn't fly. They deserve to be able to make as no. good of an argument in their case as, they, as anyone else. One of the things I always adhere to when I was in the police, and I actually still adhere to it now, is everybody deserves the law to be applied equally to them. Yeah. So rightfully or wrongfully. And I've, I've actually not charged criminals because the evidence I had was insufficient for that charge or showed they didn't do it. The problem with a lot of law enforcement, I've never found this in Canada or in my experience within CPS, I'll say that as well. I will say that up front. Did we mention that CPS is Calgary Police Services? We've, yeah, we've, we've said should. that quite a bit. Yeah, it's not Cal just Calgarians. No, yes, <laughs> or the Crown Prosecution Service. Yeah. Um, Canadian Police Services. If yeah. you look at the way um, um, interviews work, for example, um, there's a technique that was used for years and unfortunately still is called the Reed Method where they basically assume guilt and then they work towards a confession. Mm -hmm. In the UK, we got rid of that a long, long time ago because we, we rely instead on the cognitive method, which is like, you know, you get the recall from the individual. If it still stands up, that's probably true. You weigh that against the external evidence and then you've got something to support charge or something to not. Any presumption of guilt you have going into an interview, you're instantly flawed in your approach to that. Yeah. So when you actually, um, instead of looking at it as a guilt-innocence thing, look at it as a what-does-the-evidence-show-me thing. Yeah. I mean, of course, you've got a guy like Cody in blood stood at the scene with a knife saying, I'm glad I stabbed the bastard. Then, yeah, I, I, that's a clue. Yeah. But you still <laughs> go through the process and things. But that's why law needs to be applied equally. That, that brings up a really interesting question because I've got a few friends in CPS and, and uh, with the um, RCMP as well. And what I notice a lot, uh, also, I work uh, with a company or, or friends with a company called Camp Practice that support first responders with PTSD, mm -hmm. TBI, CBI, um, CET. Um, the, the stress that are under police officers at any given time is massive. And, and some guys are really good at handling it. And, you know, they mentally, physically, emotionally, everything they can handle well. And other guys can't. Mm -hmm. um, and there's support for them out there. The, the, the stress of being a police officer, um, well, maybe just talk about that. Talk about how you see it. You don't have to mention names with other police officers because how it affects people, you know, even their dietary, the, the stress levels, the lack of sleep, that kind of stuff. How much of that do you see in the industry? Quite a lot. Um, it's got better. Um, the industry itself and, and policing has recognized the risk from that. And, and we're getting better at looking after ourselves and our colleagues 
um, the days of it's not suck it up, yeah, princess. suck it up, princess. Yeah. You know that, that those days that they get there's still a little bit of that, you yeah. know. Um, but the, you know those those days are, are starting to move behind us. Um, the bigger one for me was always the sleep. Yeah, and you know shift work makes it hard. Shift and work then does. I, the, the, when I stopped working shifts, I instantly dropped seven pounds. <laughs> That's <laughs> it, amazing. Uh, virtually instantly, it's like just fell off me. Yeah, um, and I was like, wow, you're working out. It's like no, I'm sleeping. Yeah, correctly. Do you switch um, back and forth between days and nights pretty constantly, or is it one or the other? It depends on what your role is within the service. For the past, okay. last few years, I was with CPS. No, I was almost entirely days. Right. Nice. Um, and that was great. So, you know, I don't miss shift work at all. But that was actually really, for I think that was the last four years or so I was with yeah. CPS. So in a 20-year career, it was the only time I've never worked shifts outside yeah. of training academy. So with, with the shift work, are you bouncing back and forth between days yeah. and nights? Yeah, you're wow, not within the same shift pattern. So you'll do right. days, then you've got a few days off, then you do afternoons and a few days off, then nights, and then back to days. That's still, that's a lot. I think it, finding the older you get, it takes a few days to recover from switching your day to it night. It really does. And this is where one of the problems comes in. There's a tremendous book out there, which is called Emotional Survivment for Law Enforcement. And it talks about something called like hypervigilance. So when I'm a police officer, theoretically, I'm always trying to give my best to the public. So I'm always high performance. I'm always switched on. I'm always looking for the bad guys. And so when I'm at work, work gets the best of me. So when I go home, I'm like, oof. Yeah. At the end of one day, that's fine. Next day, oof. So then you're back at work the next day. So you go from hypervigilant to exhausted, hypervigilant to exhausted. When you hit days off, you come so far below your normal level, it takes you a day or two to even hit normal. But of course, you get two to three days off for the first two to three days. You know, your kid wants to play with you and go out and do the things that kids do. Your wife wants to hug you or your husband wants to hug you, whatever it happens to be. So your partner is going to see this, say, don't talk to me. I'm tired. I don't want to engage in it. And so they get the worst of you. Yeah. Then you... Stuff at home because you're now arguing with your partner, your children, whatever, and you say they don't understand me. Yeah, you go back to work and they're all like, Oh, it don't matter, you're it. So then you they get the best of you. So work gets the best of you, home gets the worst of you. And that was one of the bigger realizations that home life and work life balance. For me, policing was a very important part of my life and it gave me a tremendous experience and tremendous exposure and in terms of martial arts I wouldn't be even close to what I am today without the policing it really really did you know make me what I am but at the same time it was a job to me yeah I worked at it I was good at it and I applied a high standard to it but I walked away from it yeah. It was nothing to walk away from it because I gave something that was better for me, my family, my life. Most people become so embroiled in policing, it defines them. Yeah. That's why so many die when they retire. They have they, they become they have nothing else. They've defined themselves from being a police officer for so long. That's interesting because when I went to the camp access weekend to to learn about what happens to police officers and soldiers and stuff like that, one of the things they talked about is the training is so intense for talk about the majority, not the minority, is that we teach you to think in black and white. Mm-hmm. There's right and the wrong. So, you know, at the end of your twelve or fourteen hour shifts, you go home and you're still in this black and white view. So, you know, your wife, your kids does something you're like hey what are you doing that's not the right mm-hmm. right and they're just you create all this strife inside of your own home and like you said you're already tired and just working on reflex you're not working you're not thinking about oh did my wife have a good day or a bad day yeah. or did my kid get you know picked on it's whatever it is you just have this black and white mentality 
And they never teach police officers or soldiers how when your shift is over, how do you get to see the colors, the rainbows? And again, you see so many police officers that have that ability that at the end of their shift or at the end of their career, they're just like, oh, I'm done. This is the end of it. That stuff's for work. This stuff's for home. How, how or what would you recommend to a, a police officer that to, to, to work towards that or to how to practice that so that they're not having those you know, miserable home lives? Uh, find something that matters to you more than policing. Mm. It's, I mean, and it yeah, sounds trite to say that, but yeah. that was what it was for me. Um, when I was um, doing a lot of shift work, I couldn't do martial arts yeah. um, for, for a period of time, or certainly not consistently. I was coming out my cake. Yeah. It was driving me nuts because I love martial arts. You know, that's my big thing. Um, so I made, I had to find a way to do it again. So I did. It was relatively erratic because of the way the schedules were, but I found a club to train at. Um, take time to just be with the family make that the focus because the end game is the important thing why am i doing policing yes i'm doing policing because i want to make a difference in the world yes i'm doing policing to help everybody out but you're also doing policing because you get paid to do policing right if all you want to do is help everybody yeah. and that's your only reason for doing it then there's volunteer work there's charity work you can go and do that and then you don't have to get shot at sworn at spat at and have to roll over the pub at three in the morning yeah policing is a career it's a job yeah. And you have to almost remind yourself of that. You're not special. Yeah. You're highly trained. You're doing a dangerous job, or more accurately, potentially dangerous job. Because 90% of the time it isn't. Yeah. We're paid as much for what we have to do in policing as for what we actually do. <laughs> you know, a little like firefighters as well. They have the same sort of concept. They do. do you know what I mean? Ambulance drivers is, versus it, you know, emergency Ambulance doctors. drivers, it's, it's the, of all the ones, I've, I've got more. I couldn't do that. The yeah. abuse, you get paid jack shit. Yeah, and to for do what they the put up with, it really is bad. You know, yeah. the running, the, the the friendly rivalry between the fire and police um, <laughs> is um, <laughs> smashing the table in my rings. The friendly rivalry between the fire and police is 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 exactly that. It's friendly. You know, yeah. we, we joke about, but again, both roles are largely paid for what they might have to do versus what they have to do. Right. The difference is the fire. That they don't were looking for fires. Yeah, <laughs> they're very reactive, and the police and the expectation is if nothing's on, you go looking for it. So it yeah. becomes a proactive endeavor. Um, but it is still a job at the end of the day. Yeah, do you know what I mean? And if you ever find that point where the job is determining what you do, whether you're a CEO of a company, whether you're a builder, whether you're a police officer, or whatever it happens to be, when your job starts to overtake your life, you need to check yourself or have someone check you, because yeah. now you're not focusing on the important things anymore. So right. for me, it was always about bringing itself down. Lots of people find religion, you know, that's a good, a good escape for them. You know, yeah. I, I have my religion, I have my beliefs. Um, of martial arts training, family time, camping, fishing, hunting, whatever your, your zen place is, your, your, your happy place. Yeah. Make that what you do because that's what you, you work to live. The minute you start to live to work is where the problems start to kick in because then you're defining yourself by your job. And I think with the trauma that's involved with that, that's where the disconnect comes. I think officers start out with the ability to do that, but then trauma sets in whether you know it's uh, getting shot at, mm -hmm. getting into a fight, hurting somebody, killing somebody. Those are all massive, massive traumas. And then part of their brain, I want to say that shuts off, that it's broken, that they just they don't have that. They just feel like they got to be diligent all the time. Yeah. And I don't think 
I shouldn't say this because I don't know enough police officers to say it's true, but I, I don't f- see that most officers come out of basic training going, this is 24-7, off you go, 365, right there. I tend to find them more keyed up when they come out of training. Oh, yeah? It's like, oh, yeah, they're fresh out the box <laughs> and they're ready to go. You know, it's the, like the grizzled, cynical old sod. Like, the, one of the best guys I ever had was when I first joined the service because I was out the academy, you know, and, you know Oh, there's a fight going on. Let's go to it. And yeah. he was like, "No, there's a fight going on. Let's let our sirens up from five blocks away, and it'll have gone <laughs> by the time we get there." And I'm like, yeah. "Why do you want to do that?" And then, because ten years down the line, you're like, "Oh, that's why we want to do that." <laughs> Smart. We don't need to be in battle. Exactly. Every day. Exactly. Yeah. And that, but that's the thing as well. You know, not every situation needs a hammer. You know, yeah. not, not every not every repair job needs that hammer for it. Um, it it is very much a calling policing. You know, um, but make sure it's calling you for the right reasons right you know and it is that it's all about that balance i think it's interesting what you're talking about there uh you mentioned when a lot of officers retire they don't last very long after that just because of that lack of purpose Uh, i think it's called blue zones uh that's the areas of the world where people live past 90 years Mm -hmm. old and they're saying one of the biggest factors in that is having your connection to your community being your family your friends and most of those people are working still past 90 and that's having your purpose and I think it's it's really interesting for how much effort we put into the small things in life that don't matter, which are stuff mm-hmm. like the things we own, the things that we do for a living. That seems like a really big deal. And then we ignore the fact of how long are we going to be on this planet and how enjoyable is it going to be that we spend that time. We really don't put much factor, much worth into the fact that at some point in time, we're throwing away years of our life. Yeah so that we can chase after things that we've been told we should care about or we've convinced ourselves on our own that we should care about. And uh, I think you make a, that's a really valid point, like put some value in your life beyond what you think you should have value in. Yeah, yeah. yeah and you talk about this at length about, you know, actively going after your happiness, right? Like Absolutely. creating, creating a, a lifestyle that makes you happy. So many people... Police officers, soldiers, construction workers—they they do the same thing. Is like, well, I worked for eight hours a day, and or ten hours, or twelve hours a day, whatever it is, and so I don't have time for anything else. And it's just not true. Well, that's kind of the conflict between like me and like saying like someone like Jordan Peterson, where he defines purpose from coming from your duty, from having a purpose, right? Um, which I guess is fine as long as you maintain that purpose. But really, the base happiness I think has to be a big factor in that equation. And I guess if you take your happiness from purpose, that's great, but yeah. If a purpose is something that you can lose and you're left with nothing, then it's maybe not the best plan to go through life with. Yeah, it's like the old cat ladies where the, you know, the cat's her whole life. Absolutely. Well, the cat only lives eight years, so what are you going to do in eight years? Well, you get 20 cats. Yeah, true enough. Stag- <laughs> stagger them. <laughs> but it, I mean, it was the thing, with, a lot of the time I've seen it with um, uh, with mothers when the children grow up. Right. They've yeah. devoted their whole life to being, I mean, I mean being a mother's like a hell of a Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that empty nest syndrome, yeah. I've always uh, said a happy parent is a good parent. Yeah, exactly. And it also leaves you something to do after you've got, your kids are gone. You know, right, yeah. I, had, I mean, my parents coming up, I, mean, I lost my dad um, in November last year, so I lost him relatively recently, but he was like just the best. He right. really was, you know, for me. Everyone's dad was the best of them. In th- you know, you want them to be the best, but he was he was amazing for me, and so was my mum. You know, like they, they knew when to hold, and then you went to let go. Yeah. My mom still has a bit of a harder time, but you know, it's. Uh, <laughs> but you know, but they were. That's they. They had other things in their life that did that. One thing, with the policing thing as well, it's interesting because if you look at most industries, most people go to work and then they go home to their family and their friends. Policing, most police officers hang around with other cops. Yeah, I never did, not because I didn't want to, but because I work with these people and I, I lots of people that work with my friends and I'm still in touch with lots of them. 
Um, and I still count them as, as, as very good friends. Um, the person that recruited me to Edmonton Police, still very good friends with him. Um, uh, the partner I had longest in in, uh, in Calgary Police, I'm still in touch with him, still a great friend. But we would be friends, not, we were friends, not friends because we happened to be in the police together. Right. So when your entire social group is in the police, when you, and it comes back to a point you made, Mark, when you lose that social group, you lose yourself. Yeah. yeah. So all my friends are my friends because they're my friends, not because I have. And them. how much do you feel perspective changes that? Like we've talked a lot about, like Chad and I, we're very selective about who we decide to have in our group, and it gets really confusing sometimes when you meet people who tell you like, "Oh, you know, I, I wish I was this, but I'm not going to make any effort to become that." Where in our group, it's like, "I wish I was this. That's why I'm doing this now, so I can be that." Right. You should hold me to this, so that if I don't accomplish it, I feel like a loser by not doing it, and I'll I'll try harder to do it next time. But when you're surrounded, by, so you, you surround yourself with law enforcement people, how does that change maybe how you view the general public? That seems to be a very potentially bad situation. I would argue it is. Uh, and I'm not saying it's a bad idea. I mean, if those are your friends, those are your friends. When you're working with someone that closely, and, and realistically, let's be honest, putting your life to in To some their, degree, it has to be. Yeah, you're putting yeah. your life in their hands. You have to know the people right. well that you're working with. But I work with people I didn't like. In fact, I work with people I literally would actively cross the road to avoid <laughs> right if, 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 like, so, but because as soon as that uniform comes goes on we're doing a job we're doing a role my professional job my ethical obligation and my moral obligation is to support you in that job and make sure we both do the best job together regardless of whether i like you or not um so it's a bit of a sidetrack here how much do you feel of that is a character factor like i I've, I, i'm not you know coming from your background but i know like in martial arts there's guys that i've trained with that i fucking hate yeah but i'm still going out of my way to make sure that they're not getting hurt and i'm not hurting them um and for the time that you fight you do your thing you look after each other and at the end you shake hands you hug you're great friends but as soon as you end that session you're back to hating that guy <laughs> so i don't know if that's kind of very yeah, similar yeah <laughs> very very similar you you bring up a good point. All the police officers that I know personally that are like really well rounded don't hang out with cops. Yeah. They they just, you know, they, they go do their jobs, sometimes a lot of overtime, they do all their responsibilities within the police force, but their family is the most important mm-hmm. thing. They're they're police officers because it gives them what they want for their family. They're not they're not there just to be a cop. So yeah. I wonder that we have a the um therapist the psychologist from camp practice coming on hopefully at the end of the summer here uh he's the one that uh, works with all the um police officers and and soldiers with uh cte or uh, brain trauma and i'm going to talk to him about that and see if that's if that's actually true because it's true for the ones that i know for sure that they 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 just create this this separation and they're excellent at their job yeah but but it's that demarcation piece yeah you have to put it in there and it's I don't want to say don't do because it sounds like I'm ragging on people that hang around with their workmates. <laughs> no, no, no. You know? That's not how I understand but, it. But that's how the balance was for me. It's like, and some of the people that are my friends outside of policing were happened to be cops, but <laughs> we were friends, but for other reasons. Like one of my best friends, we had a love of pro wrestling together. Yeah. My best friends in policing. <laughs> and, and we still go to the local shows and we support the local Very shows cool. and we do all that. We still love our pro wrestling. Yeah. But me and him, I'm now not in the police anymore. If he left the police tomorrow, we'd still be really close friends because our bond isn't that we happen to be in the police together and now oh, we're in this social group and that's come together. Um, another one of my friends, is uh, one of my, uh, my, my strongest training partners um, and, and instructors, he's a police officer as well. We're friends, not be- the, he happens to be police officer. Yeah. I happen to be police officer, but we're friends not because of that. Yeah. That's important. Yeah. Um, but again, it comes down to having a purpose and something else to focus on. 
whether that's martial arts, whether that's church, whether that's, you know, whatever you, whatever you have. If you have a commonality with an individual, that friendship's instantly going to be better other than you happen to do the same job. You lack growth when you only have one group of friends or one type. I realize my background has been mostly construction. And when I used to only hang out with construction workers, it was, you know, 10 hours of doing drywall and then you go have beer. And then you talk about about drywalling. (laughs) And then at the end of the day, you've grown zero. And now I hang out with, you know, doctors and psychologists and police officers and everyone else. And you just get a a better perspective of life because you see see what everyone else is uh, dealing with or you hear about it and and uh, you're able to go oh well you know what I could do better or this person could do better I could There's something to be said this. for anti-culturing I think yeah because yeah. when you hang out with the same people you become that stereotype and I think that's what stereotypes come from is when you've that's yeah. you know like I, I'd say the construction culture has its own accent and that's the fuck culture that's right yeah, like, yeah. this is fucking fucking great fuck fuck <laughs> fuck great fuck <laughs> sounds very much like the policing culture actually yeah. <laughs> yeah. well you know some accents are just transferable <laughs> I guess yeah no it was very true that uh, I had a reputation when I got hired at the company I'm at now they uh, the father-in-law had met me on a construction site the father-in-law of the owner of the company I was going to work for and he uh, he's like you're hiring that foul mouth guy and that's all he knew me of and I actually when I heard that I, I dedicated um, well probably a good five six years I'm like I'm just not going to swear anymore and mm. I didn't I didn't say a single swear for five years because I didn't want people to view me that way anymore um, but it, it gave me a lot of growth because I wasn't that person all of a sudden all these other people wanted to hang out with me and like oh he's not just a dumb construction worker and then your your circle grows your knowledge grows and everything else actually I'm writing a book at the moment called Creative Cussing Finding Personal Freedom from Extreme <laughs> Profanity that's not a joke I legitimately am writing that's, that book I would read that book <laughs> I, uh, um, you need to add fuck to the end of that title it's, no, actually it's, well the funny thing is it was actually the, my, my, my teacher's suggestion um, saying because everybody um, is a unique individual within the martial arts and this is one of the beauties of JKD you seek your own expression within the art um, and the problem is, because, I mean, Singh's such a tremendous guy. He's like, he's by far the best instructor I've ever had. Mm-hmm. He's so balanced, and he's almost like this this embodiment of this superhero Zen monk warrior. You know, you could literally put him in a film tomorrow, and he wouldn't look out of place in any superhero film. He's that kind of dude. I yeah. think he's the, the bald yeah. guy. Yeah, he looks like he's... In a movie, any picture I've he's, ever seen. He's awesome. Him. And if you, I mean, he's, he's like, you know, he's, he's written a book with, he's done work with Jack Canfield. He's lectured. Um, he did uh, energy disruptors down here in Calgary. He's lectured all around the world. He's taught special forces. He's taught military, uh, you know, police, uh, FBI. He, he's, there's not a lot he hasn't done. He's, he's get, get him talking. His life story is fascinating. And because he's such a strong character, everybody kind of wants to aspire to be like Singh. Now, Singh wants you to be the best version of you, but it's natural you gravitate towards the authority figure. So everyone else, so he said to me, he said, yeah, I got a book for you to write. And I was like, all right, go on then. Because, I mean, I, I, I've got a tremendous relationship with him. So I, I, we, I, we, we're brothers as well. He's my teacher, he's my mentor, he's my brother, he's my friend. And he says, um, you've got to write a book on creative cussing. <laughs> I said, why? He goes, nobody swears like you. <laughs> they really don't. He says, everyone else tells someone to fuck off. He says, you'll tell them, like, go and suck warm diarrhea through a pig farmer's sock. He said, it's just the way you construct your insults is fantastic. Um, uh, and he, awesome. he said, you have a command of the language in the way you come across. And I said, like, okay, I'll do that. So, I mean, I, and the reason I'm announcing it now is twofold. One, it's a kind of cheap plug for when it's actually finally out there. And two, now everybody knows I'm writing it. I've got no excuse for slack-assing on it. There which you I've go. kind of been yeah. like, you know, I've kind of been in a real. I'll, I'll message you every yeah. week and say, "Hey, how <clears throat> yeah. far along are you?" How, in the how's book? that book going, Nobed? Yeah. You know, it's like, um, but <laughs> it was, but so anyway, but it's 
so the swearing itself, if I say, and the reason I'm drawing this out is because it's like, wow, that guy swears. And that's that image that people see of you and that perception they have of you. Now, I'm notoriously bad for not giving two shits what people think about me. I've always been bad at it. Yeah. Um, but if I say, oh, shit, then oh, he swore. Yeah. If I say, oh, sugar, oh, he didn't swear. You know damn well what I meant. Yeah. So what's the issue? Is it the language itself or is it the feeling behind the language that's annoying you? Your interpretation of the word. Yeah, if I say, oh, you sugar flaps, why don't you go and take your bicycle and ride it up a long hill and then go sideways <laughs> and suck a noodle? <laughs> Not one aspect of that is profanity. Right. But the intent behind that is basically go fuck your hat and then like feed your cock into a blender. Yeah, it's no, <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So the actual intention behind the words is the same. So it's the words that carry the power apparently to people. So the personal freedom through profanity is it's the same way that and only as someone that's skilled in violence can truly be peaceful. Right. Because for you, it's a choice. Right. If you have no skill in violence, you can't be peaceful because you're doing it as a curse. So only the person that's incredibly skillful and knows they can swear like a trooper can truly not swear. Because then you, for you, I'm not swearing at you right now, but just know you're a prick. <laughs> I think you made a, you touched on something really interesting there, which I've thought a lot about. And a lot of people that'll honestly tell you that they don't care what other people think of them are usually incredibly self-judgmental people themselves. Very much so. So they do care what people think. Absolutely. Just they one person. Yeah. And they're the people. They're going to hold themselves to that standard, which is something. It's kind of it's an interesting state. There's there's a few things that when people tell me, it really sends up a red, maybe not a red flag, but I notice one of those things is people that tell me, I don't care what anyone thinks. It's gonna. This is someone who's really going to take to heart anything that you tell them. Yeah. yeah. And on the sec, well, which not because they care, but because they're going, maybe I should be considering this on myself. And the other thing too is when someone tells me, well, I'm not a liar. I'm like, oh, that's totally what a liar would say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> not to, you know, not just just make an no, example of something else that triggers my kind it, of it flag is, to go it, up. But it's very true though. So when I say don't care, and I'll qualify what I mean is what I actually mean is I have no control of what you think of me. Okay, that's a good way to yeah. look at it too. Um, so I I I'm, I don't care. It's not like oh, fuck it. I'll say what I want. I want what I say. No, that's actually you know. This is this drives me nuts. There's this culture at the minute. This what they call the pushback against the culture of political correctness. Mm-hmm. Right, right. It's, it's political correctness gone mad. It's like, well, no. Basically, don't be a dick. Right. If you can not be a dick, then you won't fall foul of you know. Political well, political correctness. correctness is really a matter of I'll be a dick under these parameters, so I can still get away with it. Is it? That's how I see it. It can be like that as well, but it's like when people say, you know, um, well, that person, you know, yesterday was Jim, and now they're asking that you call them Sheila. That's out of order. Well, why? Does that fundamentally affect your worldview so much? No, absolutely that's not. It. So, and, but that's ultimately where I'm at with it. Okay, fair enough, Sheila. If you want, well, if you want to be Bruce tomorrow, I don't care. It's you just, challenge paradigms, though, right? And that's kind correct. of, a, that's more important than religion for a lot of people. It really is. Um, like, when people first found out that, um, uh, of the transgender issue, which let's be honest, I mean, in terms of the actual biology and the science behind it, it's a very, very small percentage of the population. It seems under one percent. It eats tr- an, a disproportionately large amount of headlines, yeah. but the science behind it is pretty much beyond. Do you know what I mean? But it, yeah, like you said, though, yeah. like what does it matter? It doesn't, and that's why people get so bent out of shape about it. It's like you know what I mean. It's, yeah, it's that it's it's what we've been taught to think. It's. Uh, Telling someone that it doesn't matter what bathroom you use is like telling someone you don't need to get married. Yeah. You're yeah, really fucked with how society works when you do that. It's You're ridiculous. Like, it's like, well, I don't want to get married. I don't know anyone I want to be married to. And I know the risks involved with that, but I got to get married. Yeah. It's kind of like, well, I don't, at my home, I let anyone pee in my bathroom. I don't really care who they are. But at the, at, at the mall, oh, you better go to the right bathroom. I'm going to fucking kick your ass. It's like, yeah. why is that reasonable <laughs> at all? You know, what, you know what I don't understand is that we, we fight for, like, say, the hate speech thing right now. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not into um, 
any kind of violence against, you know, whatever. I'm not, I'm not for that at all. It's not what I'm saying. But when we start saying you're not allowed to say something, whether it's the N-word or mm-hmm. calling transgender people names or whatever it is, then we start not understanding who you are as a person. And that scares me a little bit more. I would rather someone come in and say, I hate effing black people because, and you're like, oh, you're just an ignorant... I now know who you are, but if you hold that back and you're secretly racist deep inside, then I, I really have no, I just have this uneasy feeling around you. It's very true, and it's one of the things that when he talked about sex offender registers and making all that sort of thing publicly and naming and shaming, and again, a lo- see, one of the great things um, uh, about uh, being a right-thinking person, in my opinion, is your opinion will literally change on a subject mm. on any given day at any given time. Yeah. I'll use death panic as an example. You ask me on some days, I'm actually, I'm, I'm generally, I'm, I'm opposed to it. Yeah. However, you get me on the right day at the right time, and yeah. I will literally pull, the, I'll pull the switch myself. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, but with a sex offender registry, what they found is if you actually do too much naming and shaming on that, the whole thing goes on the ground instantly, and then you lose track. Yeah, um, and it's the same when you do. And it's interesting you bring up the hate speech thing because speech should always be free. Right. It's what Jordan Peterson fought for. It's against but Bill Fifty One. But it doesn't mean there's not a cost. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So free speech costs something. Um, And so I like knowing where I stand with someone. If you hate everybody and you want to stand there and say that you hate, you know, and start dropping M-bombs and things, I know where I stand with you now and I know what person you are. Right. If I have that hidden, then that's when you get that insidious slow burn. Under the, under the, and that's a lot harder than address at a societal level. Well, and damage seems to come from the shadows, not yes. from from the spotlight. I find like you can have people that walk around dropping end buns all day, and they could, they're not going to do anything. They just want to be able to be a dick for whatever mm-hmm. reason. You tell them you can't do that. That's when they start to organize exactly in the right. shadows, and that's where you get the problems that like legitimately are problems that yeah, come from. Absolutely, sunshine's always the best disinfectant. Yeah. It really is. 100% Most people agree. are nice. Like I remember, like as a teenager, being a punk rock kid, I met a lot of neo-Nazi skinheads, and they all wanted to be my friend. And I'm not white, so and I made that very clear. And they're like, "Whatever, we like you, though. We don't like the rest of your race, but we like <laughs> you." Like you yeah. But that that's very telling. That's saying that it's not as black and white as you think it is. You know, okay, no pun intended. The pun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, people are people, and yeah. you know, you gotta. I don't know, like... It's, it's bad, though. I mean, it's like anything, like, if you... Extreme light and extreme... It's the law of polarity. Um, extreme light and extreme darkness blind just as much. Right. It's why you notice, like, occasionally, if you've ever looked at my news feed, I'm very against Antifa. I think they're just wankers. And that's just having dealt with them at a professional level as well. But even from an ethical and moral standpoint, it's like they just don't care who's in their target. The problem is when you justify using force and violence to enforce your worldview on any individual, no matter how morally justified you are in that belief, you're then saying that's okay. You can use force to enforce your moral justification of belief. I believe that's called fascism. Correct. Um, <laughs> but then you, you're instantly validating what the right wing do. You're validating what ISIS do or da- right. Daesh, as they should be called. You're validating everything around the world because you said, well, it's all right for us because we're right. Yeah, yeah, but that's subject- let's let's debate this topic now. Yeah, yeah, that's that's subjective, not objective. And you're also, I think, every push, every uh, every push you make is going to have a pushback. Mm-hmm. And if you're making a push that doesn't need to be made, you've now just created the problem. And the other reason it's yeah. a bad idea is the right wing are much better at violence than the left. Yeah, 
Yeah. You, you know what I mean? You literally don't want... You, you, you just Well, look at that. What, what are they called? Those guys that wear the, the polo shirts that... Oh, the, the Proud Boys? Or the something? Proud Boys? Yeah. So they're pretty much just our new neo-Nazi skinheads. They didn't exist before Antifa. So nope. thanks thanks for creating that for yeah, us. Awesome. Yeah. Which, hey, let's be honest. It's a bunch of like virgins that can't get laid that are in that group. <laughs> and it's a bu- on the other side, Antifa is a bunch of just like really messed up kids that probably got fucked as children or something. It, I don't, they're, they're just really... There's, there's a lot goes on in the world, you know, like... Um, and anything can be hijacked for its wrong. I'm just just occurred to me. I know people on both sides, so I'm probably <laughs> going to get my ass kicked by everyone after this. <laughs> so, you know, that, that's, and that's when your situation awareness comes in, like we were talking about earlier. There you go. Yeah, um, I'm going to go. I'm going to go train a little extra this week. I think. But try, it's like imagine being. So here's a position. Imagine being a um, pagan, um, stroke occult practicing police officer. You imagine the shit I got for that. Yeah, I, I would imagine you got questioned a few times <laughs> okay. by the higher ups on, well, what do you well, actually do? They didn't actually, act- well, the thing is, it didn't actually come out. And the reason I came out, the, the saying is out the broom closet. The reason I came out the broom closet um, was. Um, <laughs> is that the witch warlock? Yeah, that's, yeah. that's the idea behind it. So, you know, in the gay world, you come out of the closet. So, if you're actually yeah, yeah. coming out as an open out pagan, you like come out of the broom closet. Um, so, one of the reasons I came out of the closet was that is they did this big religious um, equity festival at work. And yeah. they, they put this, um, this leaflet out. And it was uh, a, um, a group called um and it was about this thing called noah's pudding and the idea noah's was pudding. noah's pudding okay. it just Google, it's out there it's, pretty, it's it's an interesting enough story the idea was when noah landed they threw all the ingredients in this big pot made this pudding and shared it and it was love i totally thought it was gonna be like shit noah said no 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 noah's pudding wasn't a euphemism it literally is <laughs> like a, 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 a sweetest yeah <laughs> oh just excuse me i've had that curry i better go and do a quick noah's pudding <laughs> 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 shovel some Noah's pudding in exactly. your Exactly. See, now, no, see, honestly, we have now just ruined an actual tradition by calling it Noah's pudding. You know that like, everyone's now going to be saying, I'm just going to pop out for a quick Noah. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, but um, the literature that they released around it, now bearing in mind this whole thing was supposed to be promoting religious tolerance. Mm-hmm. And the leaflets said, you know, um, the, the pagans in their evil ways and you know all these wicked pagans were struck down because they're pagans and these pagans. And I was like... And generally speaking, I'm pretty much what you think of me, live and let live. But it was the context of the leaflet was bringing everybody together. And I was like, you dickhead. So I contacted our um, our liaison unit. Um, I had a friend who was working at the time. And I said, dude, who's in charge of the unit? Yeah. And he told me. So I I, I wrote an email and basically said, I've got a bit of an issue with this. And his response when he wrote back was, well, I can't see why you'd find offense with that. So it's okay to so I, I, uh, persecute a pagan, yeah. but you shouldn't do it to Muslims shouldn't do it to or Muslims, Christians. Christians or so I actually wrote back and I said, let me know where you are. We need to talk. Yeah. So I went to see him and I basically said, you do realize this is blatantly offensive to pagans. And I count myself as that. Yeah. Which I don't know if I made a clear front. Anyway, I reached out to the group and I got the whole leaflet changed. Yeah. They actually changed the wording on the whole leaflet. And he said, that's absolutely not what we meant. Yeah. And I said, no, I'm sure it wasn't. I said, when they called out, it's not what I meant. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> I'm much- shocked that that's how that was dealt with in this. Like, so my background, I used to do some work that I work a fair bit with the, uh, the police union, the, uh, CPA and heard a lot of the issues that they had in regards to this type of topic. And I've also worked a lot in yeah, human resources mm-hmm. and, uh, specifically with HR complaints with the human resource commission or human uh, rights commission. That is like a huge red flag. Like I'm, yeah, they're so lucky that your first contact wasn't a complaint through the Human Rights Commission because that would have easily been a ten thousand dollars settlement right out. Because the it was a group we brought in from outside to do right. this. It's like an, it was like a local engagement group so that that came in to do it. So I think the problem is as well, pagan. Unless you 
are involved within the community or within the world. It's just our word. It's just like, you know, um, it, it doesn't mean like non-believer effectively is what people means. But now it is, because realistically pagan comes from the Roman and it meant the beliefs of the people that lived in the countryside versus those that lived in the city. Mm. That's the origin of the word. Cool. So it was the ones that didn't follow the state religion is kind of what you're looking at the etymology of that word. Yeah. But it's since become a blanket term for, right. um, you heathens. know, the heathens, pagans, yeah. occultists, you know, what, what yeah. Wiccans, the, the, the larger, you know, and, and again, it's, it's, <laughs> The community itself rips itself apart. We don't need any help from the outside world. You know it's typically I mean? true of every yeah, we, community. We'll kick the crap out of yeah. each other and disagree on belief systems. You know, yeah. once um, you what is it? You reach Dunbar's number, and that's going to be an issue. You hit 150 people, and guaranteed, it's going to start killing itself from within. But any religious belief system is ultimately an unverified personal gnosis. It's just not your own experiences. It happens that some of those beliefs will coincide with others, and then it becomes a group of like-minded thought tanks. You know. Um, but paganism as a general rule is pretty low on doctrine mm. we don't have a lot of holy text you know we have a few like, you know there's people throw them out there but it's not the same like a bible or a quran or a torah or anything like that but we you know we got our bits and pieces and our beliefs um wiccan's a little bit different though they they literally have a bible do they not no they do not i met okay well, so, so well, actually let me let me sure. re, let me rephrase that yeah. some do okay it's not orthodoxy um, because there's many, many Wiccan groups out there. So you have okay. like, and, you know, the, 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 and even the, the, the LeVay Satanist uh, Satan Temple, they've got their Bible because he wrote the damn thing. But okay. it doesn't it doesn't work the same way as a Bible does. So yeah. like w- with Wiccans, for example, um, you'll have like um, your own magical uh, grimoire diary that you keep. Um, or you'll have like Buckland's Witchcraft Guide. But most of it is guidelines because it's such an intensely personal religion. Mm-hmm. Anytime you try and slap a doctrine on it, there'll be someone else who'll go against it because that's not their findings within it. It's, yeah. you know. So some witches and some um, branches of Wicca will have Bibles, some branches of um, heathenism, um, some branches of occultism. You know, like um, uh, Alistair Crowley, for example, wrote a book called The Book of the Law. Now, some branches of Thelemic tradition swear this is the absolute authority. Others are like, eh. It's just a book he wrote. It's almost like saying all Christians go door to door bugging you about yeah, their religion. Yeah, exactly. Oh right. man, I had, I had some Jehovah's Witnesses come around like last weekend. Uh, lovely people actually, and, and this is the thing as well. I, I no, no, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be honest with this. Anytime anybody chooses to engage with me and share their faith with me, I'm actually grateful to them because they believe so strongly what they have. Right. They want to share that love and that joy that they have within that belief system with other people. Yeah. Boy, did they pick the wrong house. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> because Ireland's like, great, because now you give me an opportunity to share my belief and my systems with you. And a look of horror on their faces as I was telling them about my belief systems and, yeah. you know, um, the underpinnings from, you know, Thalamic thought, do what thy will should be the whole of the law, love is a law, love under the will and stuff. The, 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 but the, they stuck it out. Yeah. They listened to Good me. I them. listened to them. We had a conversation for about 10 minutes and it was actually quite a joyous exchange and experience. Yeah. They probably went away and showered in holy water for the rest of the week because <laughs> I dealt this evil heathen. But they actually gave me the time of day and I was very grateful for them to do that. But with this piece, the guy that actually wrote the literature for the group, um, as soon as I told him what my objection was, he was, he was good as gold. He wrote off to the head office, they changed our literature, and he personally invited me to be there. So I met him and we shook hands and there was a bit of a follow up and things going on. And that was like, wow, look how far we've actually come. Right. Because it wasn't until recently that you couldn't practice openly. Mm-hmm. It was actually an offense under the Criminal Code of Canada and indeed the UK legal system. Really? To practice witchcraft or to yeah. practice anything that was a heathen religion. When did that get changed? Uh, well, it's actually, it got, it was the same, it actually got m- removed formally from the Criminal Code, um, uh, I think it was last year. Along oh, wow. with, along with um, you can now technically duel. What's duel? Dueling. 
you know, I'd, sure, I challenge you to a duel, glove across oh, the face. Duel. They actually removed the law on the books against that because it became redundant. There's so many other laws on there yeah, yeah, yeah. that cover that same thing, like the offen- offensive weapons and fighting public. You don't need a separate one for dueling. People yeah. don't do that stuff anymore. Oh, so it's covered by other laws? Yeah, exactly. Shit. So it was, yeah. yeah so <laughs> everybody got, everybody was yeah. like getting excited. You can now duel in Canada. Well, I was wondering, like, no, you wouldn't can't. that also set precedence for... Uh, uh, what do they call that down in the states? Uh, There's that law where you're, if two people agree to fight, consent- mutual combat. Mutual combat. Mutual, yeah, mutual combat, I was like, yeah. oh, I would love mutual combat. You here. can kind of do it here. Yeah. Um, if you two guys are going at it in the street and you decide you're going to have a fist fight, the criminal aspect, mutually engaged combat. It's it like crosses over to other laws. It's I a guess, little gray, yeah. but it's like right here's your ticket for fighting public, which is a bylaw offense, three hundred dollar fine, both of you piss off. Because what does the legal system gain by prosecuting two guys that want to knock lumps off each other over a, you know, mm-hmm. a drink, a girl, or whatever it happens to So be. you're more likely to be charged with like obstructing traffic. Yeah, do you know what I mean? It's like there's, there's a lot quicker whatever. way I can deal with this. Fighting in public, it's an absolute yeah. offense. So I don't need to argue about this. Bam, bam, there you This go. brings up a topic that I've been talking a lot about with friends with, you know, it's summertime. What are, uh, what are the laws around training martial arts in public? Like if I want to, me and my buddy want to go to the park, throw on our gear and beat the shit, a spar, a spar I mean. Uh, what are the laws around that? We did it. Yeah. Hi, I trained with you in uh, Nose Hill Park doing uh, Cali. Uh, Cali Make sure you have training equipment randomly distributed around. Even if you're not using pads, right? put pads on the floor. Okay. Like, you know, boxing pads and kick shields. Don't just show up in your uh, jeans and t-shirt. And yeah, don't, start. yeah, don't. Yeah, don't. You know, when, the, um, the, the, when I first was training um, in the UK, I had a friend of mine called Mel Mel Leithley. I think he actually still teaches in Hull. Um, we had the Gracie tapes, and we decided that we were going to test our stuff. So we went into the park, and again, like I said, the only rule we sparred under were touch the eye and bite and let go of the teeth. Everything else was, and we were bare knuckle at the time as well. Um, and we were literally kicking the stupid, 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 stupid. stupid. <laughs> Look, it makes a cool story, but it's really stupid training method. But if we, we weren't all hardcore in our youth, yeah. what was the point of being it, young? It's kind, of, it's kind of that. But, but the thing is, now I'm trying to tell everyone else, don't do what I did. Yeah. There's Sounds no, cool, but... There's much better ways you can get to the same situation without doing the stupid stuff. But the park ranger came along, because he was like, you know, there's two guys going at it in the right. middle of the park, going at it. And as he came over, he was really worried. He had his radio in his hand. But as he got closer... We had the training pads on the ground. And so he was like, okay, the guys are training. So he said, hi, guys, you okay? So we stopped. So the law is, as long as it's obvious what you're doing, right? Yeah, they generally will leave you alone. Yeah, I've heard guys getting uh, having issues with training in the park, and they'll end up getting a ticket for, uh, I guess, you need a permit if you do anything in a city park that might draw a crowd. Yes. Now, then it becomes <laughs> a performance thing. It's like anything else. If there's two or three of you, then probably not going to bother. Right. If you are taking that time to put your banner up, and right. lay out a stall or a table, then yeah, you effectively you're using it for a public promotion event. Okay. Yeah. So if you're going to teach a seminar in a park, you need a permit. Okay. If you're advertising in a park, you're going to need a permit. If you and your buddy are just stuck for an hour of something to do, and you just want to go down and throw a knuckle, you don't need a permit. Hmm. But it's not really police matter itself. It's more of a bylaw issue. Hmm. Cool. No, no. I did I'm sure the bylaw offices, officers just love to show up unarmed to deal with two guys just <laughs> knocking the shit out of each other in the park. You know, <laughs> why would you roll your eyes at uh, bylaw officers? I just I didn't. I had an itch. <laughs> um. <laughs> A buddy of mine dared me one time. We were walking in Tim Hortons, and there was uh, three RCMP and two peace officers and a bylaw officer. And he dared me to go up to the bylaw officer and ask him why he didn't want to become a real law enforcement officer. Did you do it? <laughs> I didn't do it. They, they I get knew re- they he could be really good friends with the other guys, and they had guns, Billy Cubs. And no, the co- we'd have laughed. 
if, 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 <laughs> if we did, yeah, so because it's a it's always a running joke, you know. Like, yeah. um, um, there, there was a nickname they used to have for the uh, the the trans. I mean, and again, I'm not. They do a fantastic job. They really do. Yeah, you know, it's, they have it, their place for sure. It, it's good natured humor and you know jocularity and things like that as well. Yeah. But um, we used to nickname the transit guys the bus blarts because <laughs> like the poor black mall cops. You know what I mean? It's like, but but it's, I mean, it's, it's really harsh and it's really unfair. Yeah. Um, but we we used to say, yeah, hey, what's going on, bus blarts? Like that. <laughs> oh, <I'm pissed> off. <laughs> but but it, it's it's it. Again, it comes down to that usage of language. You know, language, the words can hurt or words can, you know, bring people closer together. The same word, if I'd have gone, well, oh, fucking bus plants. Right. That's now offensive. Oh, what's going on, you fucking bus plant? Yeah. That's now bringing us together. So context and body language is everything. It's always come a full I've sp- tried that with the N word and it just doesn't. No, <laughs> I, that's that, again, man. being literally, the, you know, the same shade as a bottle of milk, yeah. that's not a word I drop unless I'm singing along to iced tea. Uh, then I might occasionally say it. Then you would. You don't, you don't mind. <laughs> The no, I just drop it. Hey, hey, I'm I'm singing iced tea. I'm I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm in full flow. And you're not a racist, so it's, no, I'm yeah. I, I'm not. But it, even again, it's like anything. You you pick your audience. Yeah, you know? it's, yeah. One of the funny me and my buddy Nolan, we were big rap fans growing up. So we used to drive around town. And we'd have um, uh, NWA playing in our police van. <laughs> we would. It's like you go along, like, drive along in a police van. We're both bopping along, playing fuck the police. We, nice. we got some good looks. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, people don't walk up and they're like you guys are trying way too hard it's, yeah exactly it's like you're overcompensating right yeah. now you're virtue signaling from your van yeah there you go I had a, a the, the same buddy that dared me to go up to the uh, um, bylaw officer or dared me one time he wanted to make a video because he thought for sure it'd go viral he said uh, you can hit me in front of a police officer but we're going to pick the right one the one that is 150 pounds overweight and that you know he can't run he's not in his car so you're going to hit me and when he tries to chase you down just try to stay taser distance away from him very I know what the police officers are going to do so you don't need to give me that look but nonetheless it would have been freaking hilarious to watch the big fat guy try to chase me down we didn't do it I don't suggest anyone else does it it would have been a viral video though awesome still would have ended up in jail nah you know what he probably would have been a, a quiet word in your <laughs> it makes you wonder though that might happen like 10 times a day to that guy yeah, might. Yeah. Have you ever seen that one? That there's a guy that was the magician that said, "Do you want to buy some drugs?" And then when a couple of to me, like palms it and disappears it and yeah. things like that as well. Yeah. But it, again, it's like, I mean, it's funny in terms of the intention. But if you show me, you know, want to buy some drugs and then you hide it, okay, strip search. Yeah, straight away I'm <laughs> yeah. going, you know, cavity <laughs> deep. Face you know, down. I'm, yeah. I'm going to tickle your belly button from the inside. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, that, yeah, was that a sounds g- uncomfortable. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where you put those drugs, but you're free to go now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but that's that's the whole thing. It's like so I get it, and and. Police, like I said, police, we're not spe- the, I'm not a police officer anymore. It's not special. It's a police of the people. You know, we represent, we're empowered under law. And fundamentally, the only differences are we can carry a gun and we can arrest after an incident. Because the powers of arrest that citizens have, if you, I mean, it's out there free. In, in, I was a security guard. I know what they are. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's pretty much the same. The difference is you can't go after an event to arrest someone. That's right. basically the only difference. You can't lose sight of them from the time they yeah. committed the crime to the time you yes. uh, restrain them. So they're actively committing or you're chasing them after they've just committed. It's actually, or they're about to do it. You can correct. kind of do that for that too as well. Yeah. The only thing you can't do is you know they've done it and then three weeks later you can't then arrest right. that person for yeah. it. Police do. So you really, can drag them into an alleyway and lay a whooping on them. <laughs> you can't arrest but them. But really, I mean, that's, that's an simplification in many ways and there's yeah. case law and things around it but basically that's it the only fundamental difference in powers of arrest is I can do it historically as a police officer whereas you can't as a civilian or private security I have a great story behind that in Chinatown uh, when a security guard was standing on a corner and then this uh, um, 
street person girl comes running out of a bank teller and then a Chinese guy out right behind her screaming that he'd been robbed. So I never lost sight of her. She, she was in front of me and I chased her down. I finally caught her. I threw her into a little cubby hole thing. She actually had a knife in her hand. I didn't realize, tried to stab me. I knocked her out, uh, which is very uncomfortable. I never knocked out a girl mm. before. Um, you dealt with a threat. You didn't knock out a girl. I will change. Yeah. I will change your language. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and the police officers were very good about informing me how to write my reports and stuff mm-hmm. like that. She was a known criminal. She was all this stuff. But anyways, we get to court, and because I had arrested her, called nine one one to get the police officer to take her away. They had to establish I never lost sight of her, and Chinatown is very, very busy. Uh, like literally, the, the the streets are packed all the time. So the her lawyer says, "Well, how could you possibly keep an eye on her?" in a busy street like that. And my only response, and I just thought about it at the time we asked, was, well, I'm a foot taller than almost everybody in Chinatown. <laughs> 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 yeah, the judge laughed, the lawyers laughed, they're like, all right, you can go. <laughs> so, Back when racism was a legal defense. <laughs> I, um, I said once in court, um, it was, um, the, the lawyer's defense was, he said, so um, I, I put it to you that um, the reason you stopped my client with these friends is because they were three black men. And I went, yes. And he went, oh, so you admit it? I said, yes, that's why I originally was, um, my attention was drawn to them. Yeah. He goes, oh, because they were black. I goes, yes, because the victim I had in the van with me at the time said those were the three black guys that robbed me. <laughs> and he went quiet for a few seconds and then he went, I've got no further questions. <laughs> Off you go. Because it's like, I know where he was going with it. Yeah. And, and don't get me wrong, I mean, racial profile, I'm still sure, still sure got goes on but yeah. if like you know i'm going to stop those three black guys because they're three black guys is wrong Correct. i'm going to stop those three black guys because someone said he just got robbed of three black guys and pointed in that direction that's not wrong because that becomes part of the description of those individuals 100%. so it's this is where the police sometimes we don't do ourselves any favors as officers when we're explaining ourselves we often just say because we're the police right because i said so yeah that helps no one yeah. excuse me sir would you mind moving along please why tell them because I said so, it doesn't tell him. Now you've created a confrontation. If I'm running, I say, get down, get down. And you ask me why, I will drop you and then explain it because there's a little more urgency behind that. Correct. But generally speaking, any reliance on authority to be its own explanation is always going to cause a problem. It, what you were saying about words is that people are so afraid of words nowadays. And, I, and I noticed it with my kids that uh, my daughter was describing she wanted to go over to someone's place. And I says, oh, is that the, the black kid? And she's like, oh, I'll take him back that I use that word. I'm like, well, how else would I describe her? Like that she is black, right? I'm not, I'm not, mm-hmm. not making up that that's, she said, yeah. I'm like, well, that's okay. I'm allowed to say that. It wasn't anything derogatory. It was a descriptive word to describe this child. I remember when I was like, when I came out, because like um, in the UK, we drop C-bombs. Like we ask you if you want sugar in your tea. It's, yeah. it's you know, you call someone a cunt, that's one thing. You call someone a dickhead, that's really severe. So it's like, <laughs> yeah, seriously, like dickheads, actually, if you call someone a dickhead, you really mean it. And in Australia, everybody's a dickhead. Yeah, exactly, you yeah. know what I mean? So it's really weird how it works. But you come over here and like you drop a C-bow on someone, it's like the worst thing you can use, the worst right. word you can use. So I did, okay, small language adjustment there. But <laughs> one of the first nights I was on patrol, I ended up in a, a pitch battle with an Aboriginal youth. Um, because coming from the UK, um, and again, words have power, I was... I was trying to pick him up because he was drunk on the bench um, not because he used to happen to be drunk on the bench I'm picking him up and say, come on matey because matey <laughs> M-A-T-E-Y because that's like a, a term of endearment in the UK that like my old friend come on me old friend you know like yeah. that like pirate mates yeah exactly like matey yeah. so I dropped it I wasn't even thinking and he just went 
boom. Yeah. And the, the fists were flying, and I'm like, oh my God. You know, like, <laughs> and you're like, pointing, what the hell is he probably saying? No, Matty, I'm Cree. Yeah. And so I'm like, <laughs> drunk tank for Apologize. Drunk tank for you, mate. So I put him in, I said, and the guy said, why do you call him Matey? <laughs> I said, well, I was like, it's like a friend. It's a friend. He goes, yeah. no. Yeah. And then he explained what that meant, and I'm like, boy. Yeah. So the that question, would have been useful to know in advance. <laughs> <laughs> the question, uh, at what point in time is it going to not be an option as a as a law enforcement to use race or gender as a description, legally speaking? And considering in our country right now, that's being the the social justice aspect of things is being pushed through by our our legal system and our government. So it seems like if it was going to come anywhere, it'd come there first. Well, really, if it's a descriptor. But they're doing the same thing with, they're saying you can't say some words. So that's what Bill 51 was, right? Like what if you say, I was, I was, uh, the witness told me that she was uh, attacked by a man. He was this and that. And that man comes to court and say, I'm actually transgender and I'm going to file uh, a complaint against the, the legal system for this. And as a result, gets off on it. Is that a realistic outcome? No, it's not. Um, no? If I describe the individual and I say, um, as I was running down the street, I saw an individual that appeared to be a male. Okay. Yeah. I'm transgender. Could you, be a female. Yeah. Yeah, I'm transgender. So, so the thing is... It could it's be a Gabby dis- Garcia. <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm using it as a descriptor of an individual... Sorry. Could be. No, it's good. You know, if I'm using it as a descriptor of an individual, like, you know, I saw a male who was, whose skin was black in colour. I saw um, an, an Afro-Caribbean male. I saw uh, an Asian male. I saw an English male. So how can you know he's English? You don't. Right. <laughs> Unless I say, oi, dickhead. Okay, definitely English. Um, but that, if it's a, a statement of fact or perception at a given moment in time, there's no problem with that. Like when I right. said, I, why did you steal those three black guys? Because the guy said those three black guys over there robbed me. Yeah. So of course I'm going to go and steal. I don't like go out all guns blazing. You're still in a whole engagement. Which makes total out. reasonable sense. But, but that's, but that's again, that bounces to objective and objective. If, however, I'm going I'm to say, right, there's an increase in burglaries in the area that stop all black lads. Now we've got an issue because now there's no there's no connection between the offence and that particular right. thing. Yeah. To use the cliche though, uh, what if it comes to a point where the black community decides to lobby the government to say that we don't like being perceived as being criminals, therefore we don't want race. If you're black, you can't mention that at all in legal proceedings anymore. And what if that's a major factor and what identified the they the don't get to make that choice now though. No, they if, still won't. They no. never will. They never will. I mean, they can choose the terminology. Like if the government says, you, well, we've been lobbied and you can no longer bring race up in a court case. Um, I would say, A, I mean, the, 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 the chances of that actually getting through is zero. Right. Is zero okay. Because it's a descriptor. Regardless of how people may feel about the profile and how that's then employed, it's still a descriptor. I'm always a pasty-ass Englishman. Right. Do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. well, I might not like being a pasty-ass Englishman and I can put bottles of fake down on me, but I'm still going to look like a bottle of milk. Um, that's a description you use to describe me. Right. Okay. It's like, because then if you allow that floodgate to open, you're then saying, well, you can't describe someone as big or fat or thin or, you know. You can't use descriptor words. Yeah. You, you're just saying, I saw a person. But yeah. at this point in time, we can't use those in, in uh, just average society. Otherwise, you're getting hit with those human rights commission. So at what point do you... Would, would that not be possible that to give me, con- give me context behind that. Well, say in your job, mm-hmm. um, your, your gender, your sexuality, uh, your race gets brought up somehow. You can take action against your employer. What's the context of it occurring within the workplace, though? Because then I can see that. So in other words, if you're working within an environment where your only job is to answer the phone, right? 
that becomes irrelevant. Well, if your employer refuses to refer to you by your gender pronoun, mm-hmm. you can you can have legal consequences by that. So what if in a court case somehow uh, your gender pronoun is not being properly used in the investigation? And it's now said, well, you know, it was a big factor that this is the descriptor. And they go, well, you can't use those descriptors anymore. Well, you could go for an argument against the... um, This is entirely hypothetical. No, no, and I get it. You could go for an argument against the administration piece. So if you say, um, uh, I mean, I want the description Zay, Zeddy, rather than like he or she or whatever. Then if you want to, if that's how they ask to be referred to, Mm -hmm. and you choose not to within the interview... Yes, you're causing a problem for yourself. Mm-hmm. However, it also comes back to if I say I saw him run, right, and I'm a witness to that offense or whatever it happened to be, th- whether I'm using that language um, as you like it or as you don't like it, it doesn't affect the material facts of the case itself. Right. Any human rights violation that's applied within a criminal context is always weighed against the balance of what do we lose versus what do we gain from this. So there's always going to be... Um would you call it there a balancing factor? Exactly. In the legal so if I, system yeah, and, and it's inherent to the system. So here's another one for you. Do you know the only legal right under the human rights that's sacrosanct? Sorry, the only um, one of your rights, your human rights, which is sacrosanct. What's sacrosanct? It can't be impinged upon. Okay. Do you know the only one? No. Nope. The right not to be tortured. Really? That's it. You name me one of the human rights that can't be impinged upon if the circumstances dictate it. Hmm. I'd never even thought about it. Freedom of religion? No, you can't practice human sacrifice. I'm instantly stopping that. Yeah. Freedom of life? You're trying to kill someone? I'll kill you. Yeah. The circumstances dictate that can happen. Wow. Yeah. Freedom of a family? No, Although, you're a sex offender. I will remove your right to have that family. Yeah. So they all have an ability to be removed if the circumstances Technically, that. torture has how it's being defined as of late. Could be said that that's even... On the on the potential block too, as any the, yeah, the, 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 you know what I mean. The, the, it again, it depends on how you choose yeah. to do it. Yeah, but with the, the new uh, the new lady running the CIA, there's a lot of argument as to what torture is because it's not a matter of what's defined by torture by the government. It's a matter of what's defined by the actual experience. And mm-hmm. technically, it comes down to anything that makes you uncomfortable. Yeah. So you know, I think Tim Kennedy recently I was listening to him talk about. He's like, I don't mind getting waterboarded. It doesn't bother me. He's like, the reason we the reason we do it and the reason it works is because we take very weak people. Like these people committing these crimes that we're catching, they're weak. We scare them. Water torturing sucks, but it's not that bad. Or waterboarding. He's like, I do it all the time. I've done it numerous times, and I'm fine. And uh, so they're like, well, really though, torture comes down to making someone discomfort uncomfortable. And he, he does it in a condition where they're not going to take it far enough to kill him, where the people that the the military are doing to believe that they're going to be killed. Right. So and you it, could say that's a huge factor of the motivation. But, but in the end, it comes like if you're going to find that against other types of torture, it really does come down to you're not. But again, I mean, I'll take issue with what he's saying, though, because the information you get from torture is notoriously unreliable. No, no, not it's, at all. It's terrible. Yeah. You never get anything good from torture. Yeah. Which is a why do it. Um, but again, torture itself becomes when it's unnecessarily oppressive because I can be uncomfortable if you make me sit in a plastic chair. That isn't necessarily torture. Yep. That's not necessarily torture. If I have the ability to make you more comfortable and I choose not to do so, is that torture? Yeah. No. Well, there'd be times where you might go to your friend like, hey, I know you said this about me behind my back and I didn't think that was very cool. Well, you just made them feel uncomfortable. Are you torturing them yeah. for them to admit to something? Exactly. Yeah. But torturing is like continuous application of that to actually elicit a prescribed response or get to the result you want. Tell me the truth. No. Tell me the truth. No. 
Tell me the truth. No. Right. Okay. But, you, you know, know I, mean? I could maybe talk to my other friend and be like, okay, we both think you're a dick for talking behind my back. And <laughs> so, they're like, oh, so I feel again, twice I mean, as bad now. But then bring, bring an into it. So now you have an interesting thing where it's like even torture, then you get the scale of it. But then it's determined, right. is this torture? Isn't it torture? If it is, it's illegal. If it isn't, then it's not. But the circumstances are still, you can't torture. The only thing you're now dis- discussing is where does the line draw on yeah, the torture? Exactly. However, the other ones, circumstances. So is it intention maybe? Uh, yeah, could be. But the other ones, the circumstances themselves, regardless of, you know what I mean, it can be removed arbitrarily. Freedom, life, religion, yeah, and family absolutely. can all be removed if the circumstances dictate that way. The only one that can't really is torture. And that then falls on the definition of torture versus the actual sacrosanctity of that right. Right. I, I, we're coming near to the end of our time. So I did have one more question because you told me something uh, before you came over here. Um, and lots of people are doing it. But you you decided to do uh, dry October or dry August. Sorry, yeah. not in October yet. Um, I, I believe that everyone should take some time. You know, uh, lots of religions have their, their days where, you know, we're going to, you know, take 40 days and not eat food or whatever it is. So what, what's your reason behind the going dry? I want to drop 10 pounds. Yeah. That was it. It was honestly there was nothing. Like, basically, I'm and it, uh, I'm only drawing because what I decided to do was cut out starches. Mm-hmm. A lot of my students, I actually issued the challenge to my instructor group too, and yeah. you know it was like no no starch, no potatoes, no pasta, no rice, um, no candy, no alcohol, because it's like most of those things are, the, are where they're hidden calories and, and the stuff that sits. I don't process starch very well. Yeah, I love it. You know, <laughs> I'll, I'll go face deep in a bowl of pasta <laughs> and I won't come out for five minutes. Um, but it's, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I decided that I was going to um, uh, just change my diet. And and it's amazing, you know, the weight's virtually off me. However, some of my guys have gone hardcore keto on this thing. Okay. So they've dropped like, you know, 15, 16 pounds in two weeks. Yeah. It's like mental. So it wasn't like any other drive other than I just like, I looked at myself in the mirror one day and was like, a oh, little bit extra around there that I could do with getting rid of. So I well, I know it's one of the best things you can do to drop weight because as soon as you stop taxing your liver, your body will naturally start dropping weight. So you take the alcohol and the sugars out, and and your body goes. Sing oh, made me do a cleanse the other week, and he does it quite a lot. And it's um, it's one of those um, those full body cleanse ones. It involves like lots of Epsom salts, okay, and fasts, and then drinking li- uh, olive oil and lemon juice and shit. Oh. <laughs> it's oh man, it's the worst thing I've ever done. It's like my Ass was on fire, like, like pissing rusty water out my ass for two days. Well, there's one that's that version. It's the enema version of all of that. Oh, that's actually, you know what? That probably sounds better than drinking a glass. Yeah, full at of least this you one. don't have to taste it when drinking it's enema. Yeah, seriously, just <laughs> shove it right up the other end. I don't have to process the taste buds on that. I had a buddy that did that in university. As a, so they went uh, two weeks with zero fat, zero sugar, and then drank a cup of olive oil. He said it was like trying to get through what comes out of a fire hose. Out of a garden house. It's honestly, <laughs> it man, it, it, you can't do it. It, it. I did it once. A lot of the guys do it and they have results with it. But I actually said no. It, it was. I've done it. Two thumbs up for trying it. No. <laughs> never again. So um, for me, it's just the case of I just eat slightly less. So I'm a big fan of saying there's two types of happiness. There's uh, the happiness of the experience at the time and the happiness of the experience after the fact. <laughs> And I think sometimes you have to weigh the experience versus the happiness you're going to get afterwards. Well, well, like when you get these studies, you know, on average people live four years longer. It's like, well, at the end of my life, I'm probably going to be shitting my own pants by the time I hit like the 90s anyway. So do yeah. I want another four years? Careful the power of words. That might be the thing that does exactly, it. Exactly. You know what I mean? So it's like, do I want that extra four years? Um, any life should always be measured by the quality of it. 100%. It, you know, not, not the length. So, you know, if I have a, a length of life where I'm, I'm continually happy, I enjoy what I'm doing and I enjoy who I'm doing it with, 
the length becomes irrelevant. Absolutely. Well, that's a good way to end this podcast. So why don't you tell everybody how they can get a hold of you about your club? Awesome. Yeah, I, my website is www.calgaryjkd.com. Um, the club is a steam martial arts. It's based in uh, the south of Calgary, 700518th Street, southeast. Beautiful. Um, and yeah, if you want to email me, it's um, havocfighting at gmail.com. Um, I uh, usually respond to emails as quickly as I can. I even respond to hate mail. I find it entertaining. <laughs> and if nothing else, get on your Facebook because there's some. Oh yeah, no. Yeah, you look on Facebook. So I've got there's a Havoc JKD um, uh, Facebook page. There's an Esteem Martial Arts Facebook page. Um, you'll see me floating around there as Der Hunter, which is my um, my nom de guerre, yeah. um, my nickname being the Hound, of course. Um, and yeah, you know, um, thanks for having me on, guys. It's been, oh, it's been thanks for coming. coming. It was awesome. I think we got to have you back again. I don't for think sure. we touched yeah, everything we wanted. Just, yeah. just let me know, guys. I'm always. I think we, Chad and I have been talking about going to a few different types of martial arts and actually trying them out, and then coming back and having a, a whole show about our experiences. That'd be and wicked good. Yeah, I think we maybe have to schedule that sometime. Come hang out with you and your guys. Yeah, the war dogs always welcome you. Your, your ladies, like you got quite a few girls in your club too, right? Actually, yeah, we do. Um, and you know, we're trying to wind up, and you got me started again. Now. <laughs> we don't differentiate really in the classes between males and females. We don't do female only classes. Yeah. We, we just teach classes. And we, I mean, obviously, I'm not going to go at the same level. Yeah. But if you have to have a female class, my worry is you then have to upgrade it if they want to go to the next level. So no, start where they need to be, and then right. work it from there. Oh, yeah. I went when I I went for about a week or so. I think I brought my girlfriend at the time, and she was going on trying to fight your instructors. So yeah, it was very much a very equal opportunity <laughs> environment. Yeah, you know, yeah we, we, we like equal opportunity ass kickings. Yeah. Oh, and you're, I think it's uh, you're, one of your instructors, one of your head instructors is a woman too. So yeah. for yeah. those people that find that sort of more comforting to go into an environment she, like honestly, that. Honestly, she's one of the toughest people I know. Yeah, we don't tell, don't tell them that until they get there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I mean she, she's my demo partner as well. She's the one yeah. of the most of my demos and stuff. And when I do any seminars, there I some... take her with me. And she should, you know, she's like, you know, pretty tough ladies in the martial arts world out there and there really is and they can sneak up on you <laughs> <laughs> cool cool well this is uh chad and mark and i want to know and we'll see you guys next week and we will